0: That's okay. Welcome to the Republican yep. Professor. This morning we have Dr. Jonathan Reepseman joining us from South Carolina, right?
1: Correct. Columbia, South Carolina. Cola yeah. City, they call it. They call it what? Cola City.
0: Cola City. Oh.
1: Cola. Cola, Cola
0: City. Okay.
1: <laughs> Cola City. I was
0: going to say, why the Spanish? I don't get it like Ola yeah. City. Uh, I'm in frozen California as usual. Uh, Curtis mm-hmm. is not with us today. He's traveling, but uh, you got your coffee. I can see. Is that coffee?
1: It's black tea.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. And I've got my coffee here. Earl gray.
1: Uh, I, I, yes. Yes. This wait. No, this is just black tea. I can oh. go look at it if you want. I can see what <laughs> table, but
0: well, they, they're, we're not getting any sponsorships yet. So okay, maybe, later, maybe later, maybe okay. later. We need the exact money from these companies if they want. They don't need any free publicity. But are you at your office there at? Uh,
1: I am. Say where you're at or? Yeah, Columbia International University. A small school, very small school in Columbia, South Carolina. So I am in my office.
0: Oh, cool. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: I'm, uh, I'm standing up, though uh because i i prefer to stand the i have a standing desk now mm-hmm. i'm getting old <laughs> i still moderately young the last time we we spoke to each other but um uh, you're one of
0: those pain. people that gets older
1: I am. As time am. goes
0: by, okay.
1: Correct. Correct. I've heard I of that. I feel it in my back. Transition. I tend to feel it in my back. So that's just just in the last couple of years. Uh, really, the last year, I started experiencing a lot of low back pain. Mm. But I've done a couple of things. One is I stop sitting down when I'm in my office. I stand up. Okay. And uh, and then doing like you know back exercises, planks, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and then just kind of actually fixing some diet stuff seems to have helped as well. Really? Wow. So, um, so yeah, so I haven't been having the, the pain's much better, but I still try to stand That's up. Cool. If I sit, if I sit very long at all, it just, I start to feel it. What
0: uh, dietary stuff have you changed?
1: Um, trying to, well, I mean, this, this part's very recent, so maybe it's even too recent to attribute anything to it. Uh, okay. we're all aware of the post hoc, ergo proctor hawk fallacy. I don't want to fall into <laughs> well,
0: that. You and I are, but that doesn't mean that everybody <laughs> listening to this is. You want Correct. to say
1: what that is? The oh, sure. Awesome. Sure. Yeah. So it's a Latin phrase that means after this, therefore, because of this. And it's a very common fallacy people fall into of uh, mm-hmm. thinking that just because one thing happened and then something else happened that the first one calls the second one. Uh-huh. And so just because I've made changes to my diet and I'm feeling healthier in various ways, doesn't necessarily mean they're connected. They might be. It's a yeah. good for a kind of hypothesis that then you can go test. Sure. But, uh, but yeah. And
0: say the name of it it's again.
1: Dietary change, uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc, but it's better known just as the post hoc fallacy. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah, there's a show called West Wing that uh, was on like 20 years ago, I think. Hmm. Do you did you ever watch it, West no, Wing? No,
1: I remember I remember when it was the huge hit, but I never got into it.
0: Yeah. Well, the I think. Their first episode was called or it was in the first season, I know that it might have been the first episode that was called post hoc ergo propter hawk. Mm-hmm. So um little reference there yeah. for you. Same same thing. Then I thought mm-hmm. it was cool that they did a a show allegedly around a fallacy, a logical fallacy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But um they didn't have a philosopher writing it, so I could tell. That's too bad. Yeah, they had somebody that taught. Uh, is my is my sound okay on your end?
1: I, well, I hear you fine. I'm okay. using a little got a little, my little earbud here. Okay, I'll probably just I can just use one. I, I, I hear think. a
0: little noise. Hopefully, it's not too bad.
1: Oh, I hope it's not coming from my end.
0: No, no, it's it seems to be coming from my end, but that's okay.
1: Well, I I don't hear it. You sound fine to me.
0: Okay, good. Um. Well, anyway, I, I uh, wanted to share a little anecdote of uh, Jonathan. Jonathan and I were, um, well, which one do I want to use? Um, I think we sat at the same table at the 20-year, re, uh, not reunion, but 20-year anniversary of the, the Biola MA was philosophy Was so it 20
1: or 25? some reason, I thought it was 25.
0: It might have been 25. might have been 25. Mm-hmm. That
1: sounds actually
0: better. Yeah. Uh, 2012, I believe it was May or April, something like that. And uh, I think Rob Coons was at our table and Daniel Bonovic and mm-hmm. Gary, Gary Osmondson, I think, was there, sitting there. Yeah, I
1: think you're right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, um,
1: Alex Plato, was he sitting at the same table? Probably. Probably. Yeah. Sounds like something he would do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so Jonathan, I've known since our days at Biola, we had a, among other things, an evidentialism seminar, uh, toward the end of my time there. And that was great fun. Jonathan went on to, did you go straight into a PhD program after that?
1: After Talbot, I took a year off. Oh, okay. Um,
0: what did you do I for went, a year?
1: I went to Scott. It's now called Christian University at the time it was Scott Theological College in Kenya. Oh, wow. Uh, I taught there for one term just to, I had the opportunity and I decided, let me, it's a chance to try out this professor thing and see if I really want to start the whole PhD route. And it was a wow. confirming experience. So that, that was helpful. I also worked at a, I worked in Orange County um, at a home for troubled boys. Uh, a, uh, well, it's, um, it was one of these group homes for boys who had kind of flunked out of the foster system. Wow. So I worked there for almost a year, maybe about 10 months. And then I, I left there to go take, do the teaching in, in Africa.
0: How long were you in Africa?
1: For just one term. So they were, they were on the quarter system. So I was there for about three months. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so okay. not very long, but it was my first full-time classroom teaching experience since it was, it was just two classes. But since it's a quarter system, that's, that's full-time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so are they on the Oxford system, like the Hillary Michael mass term, or is that what they call it down there? Or?
1: They didn't use that term. They just said a quarter system. Okay, that's how they called it. Yeah. yeah. And they were having the debate over whether they should stick with that or go to semesters. I, I don't know how that turned out. But that was that was going on. Yeah, you really felt the British culture down there from the colonial era. Yeah, like everybody sure. they, it's great coffee there. They had coffee plantations, but nobody drank, but everybody drank tea. Nobody drank coffee. Oh, that's sad. So, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's funny, actually. Mm-hmm. Is that where you got into tea? Was it in Africa?
1: Um, Well, I'm actually more, in, I'm still more into coffee. It's just when I, for my afternoon, if I, if I have caffeine in the afternoon, which I usually don't, I, I have take caffeine. it in the form of tea because it's a little, a little less intense mm-hmm. so, and there's, there's what a- antioxidants or something. I mean, black yeah. tea is supposed to be. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, something.
0: absolutely. I've, I've heard that. I've heard it's great for you. I've heard that about coffee as well, though. So yeah. Um, now you you went to uh, I believe you went to St. Louis University for your PhD in philosophy um, and I think you went the same time as like a bunch of other people like yeah. Tedla and um, mm-hmm. and Alex and uh and then there were Ar- some Aaron maybe? friends. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, Ar- yeah, Aaron Aaron, Aaron Clark, mm-hmm. Charity Anderson, do you remember her? Oh yeah, 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 Charity. Yeah, so yeah. she went th- she actually she arrived I think the year before
0: Oh yes, I remember her she very well. She actually
1: finished it. Yeah, she just finished. She finished in just five years. So she's always
0: she's always so delightful to talk to. Yeah, she's got a bright, beaming smile and very kind person. Yes, yes. very bright. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now, um, what drew you to St. Louis? Was it epistemology that you wanted to do?
1: It, yes, it was, and they were also pretty strong in philosophy of religion. So they were okay. Um, Stump?
0: Uh, who was there that, in philosophy of religion? Uh,
1: Eleanor Eleanor's. Stump's one of the big names. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, John Greco, even though he did epistemology, he was the one that I went to work with in epistemology. But he would yes. write on religious epistemology as well. Um, let me see. Well, There's Jonathan Jacobs, who he was kind of a, a, you know, younger getting started professor then. But he's he's going on to write stuff in philosophy of religion and uh, um uh let's see i'm trying to. oh um susan Brower toland also philosophy of religion and medieval philosophy more some of these people are more like eleanor stump and susan broward toland are more medieval specialists but yeah they cross over into philosophy of religion obviously there's an easy tie there to make with medieval philosophy yeah so um yes, yeah, so you had uh, you had uh, a few people like that
0: and i know we had alex on and he he went to work with john greco as well but then he changed when he was there did you change or did you stay
1: no i stayed record? i stuck with him i i uh, he and i got along very well i appreciated his his style of you know um directing a dissertation uh okay and um and i alex i i watched the interview with alex all what, was it almost four hours it was at least three hours it was, it was three hours yeah three hours yeah i know because <laughs> so, I, I
0: always listen to them again so i describe it well yeah, and just so I never have to do it again, like I go, uh-huh. okay, I, I now I know there was no issues with that. There's no problems with that. There's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's great, it's great. <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: So w- once you get a huge staff, you'll have to cut those into episodes. Like here's when yeah, we talk yeah, yeah. About this topic, and here's when we talked about that topic. But, People but, keep um,
0: telling me to do that, but I don't have the energy for that, and I don't right. have the I don't know the technology very well, so I'm a technological idiot.
1: Well, I'm there with you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I don't know how to do that. Uh, so the uh, let's see well, we just talking? so You
0: did epistemology. So you stayed with Greco, right? Yes,
1: yeah, so I stayed with Greco. So I know that. Uh, yeah. Al- so Alex said that he kind of didn't really appreciate as much the way it was done once he got into it. Um, and yeah. He, and other other questions weren't sure. But I still mm-hmm. I still stayed interested in it. And um, and I did appreciate the way it was done. So I uh, so I stuck with it and finished out my dissertation in the in the same vein.
0: You uh, you mentioned you appreciated the way that John Greco does his dissertation advising. What can you say a little bit more about that? What? Yeah,
1: I, at least for my personality, he struck a really good balance between providing direction and giving freedom. That's the main thing. That oh, I mean. that's cool. So uh, there are some dissertation directors that are very sort of strong handed in how mm-hmm. they might direct a dissertation. Yeah. And there are others who are just, you know, you know, all right, you're almost on your own. And I think, mm. he, did, at least for my personality, good he balance. did a really good job of providing me direction when I needed it, but also saying like, hey, you know, if you don't want to take it the direction, I think you should then explore your direction, or, you know, so, uh, so I really appreciated that about that.
0: So I'm looking behind you at your volumes, and I see some oh. familiar ones. Yeah. I see Alan Bloom's Plato. I, yeah. yeah. I see, I see, sure, yeah. uh, is that the Republic? Probably.
1: Uh, yes. The white volume. The, right. This is the, the, uh, Hackett edition. I get, I bought a lot of the Hackett stuff because they're cheap, but they're pretty good too.
0: And then uh, I see, uh, Cop- history of philosophy up there on the top. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think the only stuff I can make out. I think maybe well, I this is
1: can... that you would have recognized the old edition of it. That is the philosophical foundations book from Moreland and Craig, but that's the, the updated.
0: Oh, of it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't recognize that one.
1: Uh, cool. And this is, well, this is uh, Eleanor Stump and uh, Dave and um, Brian Davies, the Oxford Handbook of Aquinas.
0: Oh, I don't have that. So
1: she was, of course, she was one of my professors and she was on my dissertation committee. Oh, cool. She, so She's really an Aquinas specialist. That's her big yeah. thing. But she brings awesome. Aquinas into contemporary conversations. That's awesome. So that's, that's what that is. Uh, so is that... Uh, See, so now I've got to unplug. What's the, that, the, what's the, that the, one
0: the that, uh, the, the, so, the orange one, is that...
1: I guess it, I guess I didn't have to put it back.
0: <laughs> that looked like a, okay. So we don't have to go through your entire library, but. Um, <laughs> I've, got, anyway, I've got more stuff of... over that way. So. Oh, yes. There you go. Yeah. Now, okay. So you did your PhD dissertation on epistemology and for right. people who just started listening to this, maybe. They didn't hear the other episodes where we define epistemology every single time we use the term. So we'll we'll just continue that tradition that way. People can start anywhere, and they don't have to feel like they're they need to listen to seven hours before they get the definition of epistemology. But
1: right, yeah. So how would you
0: define it?
1: Yeah, simple way is just the theory of knowledge or an attempt to explain knowledge and related and related concepts such as justification um, rationality, even, even terms that are, uh, that are sometimes considered part of the definition, even though that's always disputed, but like belief, what does it mean to believe something? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those, so any kind of term that tends to come up when you start talking about knowledge, that term also becomes part of what you explore and examine when you do epistemology. But the key idea is uh, theory of knowledge.
0: And knowledge is important. We like knowledge
1: um, yes, some people do. Yes, how,
0: how do we get how do we get knowledge? What's it mean to know something? Do you have a rough and ready definition of that that you've come to?
1: Yeah. So, well, I mean, there's there's different definitions I could give, and of course, you and I were in an evidentialism seminar, and so we we would have heard it defined a certain way. My professor, uh, John Greco, um, he he's not an evidentialist. He's uh, what he would use the term virtue reliabilist, and that's kind of the framework with which I I. Did in my dissertation, I adopted that framework in order to explore certain questions, even though I think that you, you didn't have to do that in order to. Uh, um, it, it's, uh, it, it was just like, let's adopt a framework in order to explain these concepts. Um, but it, you know, there would be other ways of explaining it. Anyway. Uh, you're, you are know, you're going to have to keep like pulling me back on track because I tend to go way help. That's time.
0: fine. That's what I'm here for.
1: But yeah, so you said define knowledge. So um, one really simple definition that I think almost everybody can agree with, but then they'll almost always say, well, but it's not enough. We need to know more is from Linda Zagzebski. Who is a, so uh, just so your mm-hmm. listeners know, she's a, a Catholic philosopher who's been very influential in both um, moral, I would say moral theory, maybe a little more recently, but uh, epistemology was one of her big areas, especially virtue epistemology. Uh, and so she, she says that knowledge most simply is just cognitive contact with reality. So it's when the way you think about things matches gotcha. the way things are, cognitive but the, contact the comes with reality. in right but then all the work comes in when you say okay but what what do we mean by contact yeah and and maybe and you can
0: see this <laughs> now we maybe we should describe a little bit of what people might be experiencing here is it seems like you take one word and then you say okay epistemology is a study of knowledge okay well what's knowledge oh it's and it's uh yeah. according to zagzebski it's this lady who taught at Loyola Marymount for a long time, by the way, where I taught mm-hmm. for a long time. We, although we didn't overlap, but she was like a legend there. Mm-hmm. Um, Zagzebski says that um, knowledge is contact with cognitive contact with reality. And you're saying that's pretty good, right? Is that what you're I've saying? saying that's
1: good enough, probably good enough to get started. And then you're okay. going, but then when you get to more precise definitions, it's going to be trying to trying to hash out, okay, well, what does that mean to have cognitive contact with reality? Yeah. And then yeah. the normative conditions, like are there are there norms about how you are to go about getting into cognitive contact with reality? So mm-hmm. that you know, you have to do it this way in yeah. order to really count as knowledge and so forth.
0: Well, one thing that might be a little bit odd for people that are not Phil nerds like us, or yeah. like I should say like you. Uh, I, I guess I, I do count as that. I mean, if yeah, I, I can follow it. if if I can follow what you're saying, I'm probably a Phil nerd too. Uh-huh. But uh, I did teach it for 15 years, so I guess that counts. Um, yeah. But yeah. but um, Phil, the, the philosophical method is called is the analytic method. It's it's the analytic tradition. So there, it's a it's a thing in the history of philosophy that's been. Quite pronounced, most recently, I would say. Although it's probably there some, at some, in some way throughout the history of philosophy. But most recently, there's a thing called the analytic tradition, Anglo analytic tradition. And I think, uh, wouldn't you say that you're in that tradition? You're squarely in that tradition.
1: Pretty squarely in that tradition. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm not. Okay. I'm not. I try not to be snobbish about those who are not. <laughs> Okay, um, that's good. Uh, and, I, and I do appreciate that there are there are weaknesses and shortcomings in that tradition.
0: What would um, you say the strengths are of that analytic? Uh,
1: the strengths are like the emphasis on being really clear and precise in what yes. mean, the words that you use. I like
0: that too. Some people get really uh, frustrated though if you keep defining terms, they can't right. keep up with it and then they're like they get tired, their mind gets tired.
1: Right, yes, and, and then, that, the then that's why that, they don't
0: like it is because their mind gets tired. <laughs>
1: Right, right. But then the irony is also that as you define terms, sometimes you realize that just a common word isn't really going to cut it anymore because you've got to be more precise than common language is. Yeah. And then you start introducing all your terms of art, and the next thing you know, right. it's just as confusing to someone who hasn't <laughs> been following along. It's just as confusing as the continental philosopher who's you know doing really the same thing. Maybe, maybe they just start doing it sooner. I don't know. Would but you it, say but that's the downside of it yeah, that's one of the downsides is because you're trying to be so precise that you do end up having to introduce a lot of technical distinctions that can be hard to track with. Um, so yes. that's one of the downsides. And then another downside, at least historically, I don't know if this is true today still, but historically is that it's, um it, well, this part probably is, is that there's a tendency to get ever more narrowly focused on like, like I'm trying to understand this one thing. And then I realized, yeah. like, that one thing i've got to get really precise to this thing and then i've got really and then next thing you know you're spending like years talking about this one (laughs) tiny idea
0: years it's a good reason
1: that got you there It was like some really important question that got you there but now this is where your career is is this one little tiny thing um and it's no longer this like breadth of like philosophical right and everything it's now like i'm trying to understand exactly this one little tiny thing and so that's a potential down that's good
0: that's good stuff I, i think um One of the benefits of doing this podcast, I think, is trying to um, give uh, folks in our, what we do, a chance to talk about what it is we're doing, what what it is you're doing, um, in a way that uh, maybe people can appreciate. Like, for example, it might be kind of puzzling for some people to think, what in the world does a philosopher do? How do you just make a living as a philosopher? And is that a worthwhile activity? And, and the, the thing you just described, like getting ever more precise, and then it's just so confusing. Even professionals have a hard time with it. See, you can see from a certain angle, it, it feels uh, maybe like a waste of time or something. Someone might think that, but it's really, um, it's really not a waste of time ultimately because um, these are questions that really impact our lives. Like knowledge, what is knowledge? Turns out that people disagree about parts of that. And that, that's maybe the part they're, not, they're missing is that it's not that everybody agrees necessarily with the outcome. And so it's it's kind of and, and sometimes the the disagreement can can um, well. Why, why, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you what your thoughts are. React about what I just said.
1: Yeah. So the uh, I mean, there is a lot of disagreement, and well, in the world of professional philosophy, of course, there is, and part of that has to do with yeah. what they call the sociology of the discipline which is that uh, in order to try to, at least if you're trying to really turn it into a, if you're trying to rise in the field, I guess you would say, like you're trying to make a real reputation for yourself. Uh, and there's va- a variety of reasons someone might really make it their desire to make a reputation. The first would be pragmatic uh, because it increases my chances of landing a job or landing a better job or something like that. And then of course, there's just the usual, and uh, the, and the, I'll, I'll use the word temptation, temptations of pride and status and all of that.
0: And that that exists in philosophy? I mean, a lot of people, you know, it might does exist in this. academia
1: and, okay. in general, and it does exist in philosophy, too.
0: What? Uh, how does that what does that look like? Uh,
1: so, it, so it can look like, uh, well, so this is how it relates to the disagreement is there's a motive to disagree because it is by showing somebody else to be wrong. Well, that's one one path. Okay. You take. Yeah, that's it's that's, that's a really going going important thing you just said. Is, yeah, identify identify. And it's often put as you're trying to figure out like what the going opinion is or what the, yeah okay the received tradition is, and then show how you can show that that's wrong.
0: Okay, yeah, that's huge. And so that's the way you get advancement and notoriety. And is it more money? Do you get more money?
1: Well, I don't know about that. More so, conference present presentation opportunities, maybe. But those, uh, are, maybe those are Those are given for. But yeah, free, but right? you could get you could get. Um, you, what, I mean, what be, motivates the uh, philosopher is what we're trying to get at. It's not yeah, money. So it, Right. So it's not entirely money. In fact, I would say that it's not, in fact, yeah, I would say it's not, it's definitely not entirely money. There's some, there might be some money in there if you want to get, like, I want the better paying job, but it's still a job in philosophy. Yeah. So there is a, there's a limit to how high that, how much upper limit. What do you think the upper limit is? More, oh, shoot. I don't know. Is it, no clue. What
0: what do you think the highest paid philosopher gets?
1: You think you mean, I I assume that you mean uh, not, just, including just book royalties. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, um, my, this is t- this is a totally it's worthless. It's utterly worthless because it's a guess. I would bet not over three hundred thousand.
0: Well, that's that's higher than <laughs> I thought. I was going to say one fifty. Well, I,
1: well, I, what I'm thinking is if it's okay. somebody who's really eminent at a very wealthy private institution. Yeah. Okay. Like maybe they could get up toward that that level. I mean, maybe I should have said 200000 I don't know. But it'll be like, you know. Hard to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry.
0: now, okay, but so.
1: Nothing like corporate CEO level or, uh, no, you know, or even, a, even well, a, I mean, a lot of CEOs, CEOs in a make business that. Business school or something. Yeah.
0: You could be a CEO and run your own business and be making a lot less than that.
1: Absolutely. Right. So,
0: a lot of people That's are not even making. Major,
1: major. No, I thought all CEOs were, were filthy rich
0: and people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll have links to Amazon, you know, <laughs> on this description here. Well, okay, so um you studied epistemology, you were very concerned about getting knowledge right. Um what aspect of epistemology did you find to be the most interesting? Are you, are you still an evidentialist or were you, I guess I should ask you, were you? Ever? Uh,
1: I, well, when it comes to a lot of us, like here's one of my weaknesses. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's weakness. I would just say one of the characteristics, my characteristics is I'm, well, I'm kind of skeptical, which is probably why I got into epistemology in the first place. Uh, but it also means that what I'm, do you mean
0: by skeptical? Um, so by
1: skeptical, I mean, uh a little bit on the doubtful side toward a lot of ideas and theories and so forth. Okay, I tend to I tend to immediately look for okay, what might not not be right about it.
0: That's your first foot uh, forward,
1: typically. Often it is, yeah. So if someone puts forward a theory, puts forward an explanation, I'll start thinking about counterexamples or something mm. like that. That's that's okay. what I do pretty typically, which in marriage can not not always be a good thing. <laughs> Uh, so you have, you have to learn to temper that in personal relationships. Oh yeah. Uh, but it does mean that I, but also I tend to be, I tend to be, uh, fairly easily impressed with what a theory gets right. So I'm, the, I'm the kind of person who'd be there saying like, well, I'll think about, well, here's the strengths. It does this and this and this well, but I'm not so sure about this and this. And then I would be kind of like that toward a lot of different theories. So that's why I say with my, and if in my dissertation, I I, uh, I I said this, you know, blatantly is um, I'm adopting a sort of this virtue reliabilist framework.
0: Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned I'm that that's really a technical term, virtue reliabilist. Right. So let me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a
1: certain view in the. It's a non-evidentialist view in the in epistemology. So the evidentialist view would say something, and this is like this is way too rough, but a general idea would be okay. if we go back to what knowledge is, is that you know something if you, I'll just put it in terms of something that needs to be true, even if other stuff might need to be true as well. So what we call necessary conditions rather than sufficient. So, uh, so an evidentialist might say, well, knowledge requires having good evidence for your, whatever it is that, you know, like if you're going to claim to know it, then you need to have evidence.
0: That's what an evidentialist would say.
1: Correct. And then, uh, so the question was,
0: are you that are you one of those?
1: Yeah. So, so, And so that's where I'd say it depends on what, maybe what you mean by evidence. Um, right. So then the okay. reliabilist says it's not so much about needing to have evidence, it's that the belief is true because it was formed in a reliable way. Now, that's just reliabilism. And then the virtue reliableists say, and the right way means through your own intellectual abilities and virtues, um, that mm-hmm. you form the belief in, the, in what you might say was an intellectually virtuous kind of way, as right. opposed to an intellectually vicious kind right. of way. Where, and virtue is often treated, at least in, in the virtue-reliabilist camp, virtues and abilities, those terms are used almost interchangeably. Okay. So an intellectual ability, like I have the ability to see, like my computer screen right now. And so I believe I'm having a conversation with Lucas Mather over the internet. And what else I believe is that you're in California. So I believe I'm having a conversation with you because of what I see on the screen. But I believe that you're in California because you told me you were. And you, tr- um, and you trust me. And I trust you. I believed you because I, I I trust you when you say that. I trust that that's true. It's right. not because I see the Golden Gate in the background.
0: You're right, right. Because right. I know
1: that's a lie. That's a, that's a <laughs> dirty lie.
0: <laughs> All movies are lies. Every time we watch you know, Netflix or yeah. Amazon, we go to AMC, I'm like, like I'm paying you to lie They're to lies. me. And for, I'm right. just pretending that where it's a it's a pretend time and i give money to act like i believe what's going on here you know so yeah it's that's they don't really know each other they're not really married they you know that's not really their kids that's not they don't really Mm -hmm. live there that's not really Mm -hmm. their dog he didn't really Mm -hmm. die on the beach in normandy saving private ryan i I walked out i was like
1: yeah this is a Well, you know there have—I mean, I know you know this—but there have been people who really thought, who really believe that, and thought that way. That
0: when I'm when I'm teaching, yeah, when I when I'm teaching, never
1: making up, yeah.
0: When I'm teaching and I use films, I'll I'll pick one of those two things to do. I'll either say I'll do the lie one, uh, or I'll do I'll say I cannot believe they killed all those people just to make saving Saving Private Ryan. It, but it's worth it if you think about it, because we need to know about World War II. We
1: need that story, and it's we're wor- not going to. It's worth it, it to yeah.
0: kill all those people. I can't believe they signed up for it. To be honest well, yeah. um, okay, so go back to so uh, virtue reliability. We 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 get off track, but we always come back. So yes,
1: yeah.
0: Now, uh, I would say, since the, according to the emails I'm getting from Pod Status. That this, they say this is ranking well in government, specifically in government. So, people Uh are the kind of people that are listening to this apparently are people that don't have a philosophical background necessarily, but they're interested in how the connection, even a little Mm -hmm. bit of a connection, is. So, um, I know we tend to, I think the tendency for some of the specialists I've had on is they might be thinking of their colleagues. If they, the, the colleague heard them miss, uh, miss, uh, I almost said misgender, but miss, uh, define something or something Mm -hmm. that's, that might happen. It might be a little bit sloppy, but that's okay. Because we're so 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 I will think
1: I'll try to think about your listeners. Yeah. We're
0: trying to, and I'm not going to worry
1: about being too precise. Don't be too, yeah. Try to, if you're going to
0: err a little bit, that's okay. Fine. We, you could go back and fix it later. It's fine. But, um, but uh,
1: I hereby disavow everything I will say from this point <laughs>
0: forward. <laughs> just capturing—that's uh, good. That's good. Uh, capturing <laughs> the the curiosity. So I guess it, I think it's a curious general audience. Somebody that maybe uh, did an undergraduate in a different discipline, but was always curious about philosophy, or yeah. somebody that maybe didn't finish college but is extremely bright and has a long attention span, and maybe will go back and listen to stuff. So evidentialism is the claim that evidence is a uh essential part of knowledge um mm-hmm. uh, or a necessary condition of knowledge and that seems pretty common sense to say yeah you need evidence for what you believe for you to know it uh there's some people that disagree with uh looking at it that way they there's some technical things in here like internalism versus externalism. I don't know if you wanted right. to mention what that is. Seemed like you were assuming
1: yeah, that so you want to like, take that so really we, quick. I guess we could do, we could just throw that in very quickly, but that, yeah. that uh, okay. we don't want to get into the weeds too much there. But the evidentialist is typically an internalist, meaning the conditions that make the difference between, this is probably worth saying. So you might say that most agree that there is a difference between knowing something and simply believing something that happens to be true. Right. So, the example I like to give is if I were to flip a coin and not show you what it was, uh, and I say, Well, heads or tails, you might just guess, but there might be some people who are convinced that they are excellent guessers at this. And they're yeah. Like, yeah. I always, write. that's good. They're just like way overconfident. That's a good and so, they, and so they'll be like, oh, heads. I know it's heads. <laughs> now it might be heads. So let's suppose I, you know, I'm looking at it and I can see what it is. And this and you've got this person who's like, Yeah, I know it's heads. And it might be heads, but I wouldn't think that they know it's heads if I haven't shown it to them yet. I might yeah. say, Meh. You're just overconfident. Like you're guessing, and maybe you guessed right, but so it's true and you believe it's true, but do you know it? Meh. And that's where the issue comes in, where we say, well. The epistemic condition, like there's something, and this is what we'll talk about, the specifically epistemic condition. So truth is not the epistemic condition. Uh, you need it in order to have knowledge. You need your belief to be true. If it's not true, you don't, like if your belief isn't true, then it can't be knowledge. Um, and if you don't believe it, it's not knowledge. Like if, you, if you're just like, yeah, I have no clue, but this. So two
0: necessary conditions of knowing.
1: Right, so it's, it's gotta be
0: true. The proposition, and you have to believe it. Yeah. and you have to believe the proposition.
1: Right, right. And so then there, but then everybody, almost everybody agrees that there's something else you need besides that for yeah. knowledge. Okay. And so, and so then the debate is over exactly what is that. What is that thing? How, the that's where the says, debate is. Okay. Right. The evidentialist says it's got to be that you actually have evidence for that. belief. Yes. Like maybe, so
0: that's one position in the, in and, that then, and
1: then yeah. the internalist who often, you know, evidentialism and internalism often go together. Yeah. Uh,
0: they,
1: they would, it would say you have to have internal access to, to the evidence. Right. So it can't be that, well, there's evidence out there but if I don't, you know, if I don't have internal awareness and internal doesn't mean like you look inside my stomach and you find it, it's internal <laughs> in the sense of my mind, right? Yeah. Uh, you're aware I, of it in I your aware, mind I'm internally. Yeah. I mean, I'm aware of the evidence and I see the evidence, see again, you know, the yeah. evidential relationship, right. whereas the externalist might say, uh, well, you, you know, there, it, sometimes if you can, um, if you have this intellectual ability to know something, or you have this intellectual ability to grasp the truth, you might not be fully aware, fully cognizant of how it is or why it is. But that doesn't mean you don't know it. That that say uh, that
0: one more time. Say
1: because that's so that, really yeah, really good. The say, way you just
0: said it was great.
1: Yeah. So it, so it could be that there are there are conditions that have to be met mm-hmm. for my belief that such and such is true. Uh, that have to be met, but I might not be aware of those conditions having been met.
0: Can you give an example? But
1: that does can't know it. Yeah. Um, so the uh, yeah. So let me let me try to think of a good. Give example
0: an example of, of so- we know something, but we're not aware internally of how that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't give any uncontroversial examples. I was trying to think of a simple, uncontroversial example. And I was like, well, wait a, of course, there aren't any. Fair enough. But an example of one that, uh, that a reliableist might give. In fact, this will be relevant to my dissertation project. So let me go back to me believing that you're in California because you told me so.
0: Excellent. Um, yeah.
1: Now that's, uh, so the idea might be, okay, The you telling me, we could say that, that that's evidence um, of course, but then you have to say, well, what does it mean for something to be evidence? It has to be that's actually a good reason to believe, right? And so if you're at least a certain kind of internalist, evidentialist, then you have to say um, that this is, that I'm aware of what it is that makes you saying that a good reason to believe it. Okay. As,
0: All right. I got gotcha. you.
1: Whereas for a certain kind of, uh, of reliable, they might say, well, look, as long as Lucas is trustworthy in what he has said, as I, we're we're already assuming true and I believe it we add to that, that I trust you and that you are trustworthy. Well, you're, Mm -hmm. I might not have direct access to your trustworthiness. Right. Like I can't just see your trustworthiness.
0: You see my facial expressions and maybe you make, or, you know, I see there's some kind of maybe like pre-historical DNA. But but, um, maybe I don't even have
1: to be thinking about all that. Like I don't, like you know yeah. so maybe and again it's a controversial example but maybe i can know okay. just because i trust you and you're trustworthy but notice the and you're trustworthy is something going on outside of my mind um i might not even really be aware of it right um,
0: right 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 so,
1: so that would be the rough idea so hopefully that's so at least what, good enough. what to is it
0: idea. do you believe
1: i'm in california i do believe you're in california okay
0: and you what's your evidence if you start for that
1: somebody- so I do have evidence, but all of my, almost all my evidence is similar. It it all has to do with things that you said and done and presented online. So it's all stuff that you are in control of and you gotcha. could have manipulated.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, and then does, does it have anything to do with the type of statement too? Because it's kind of a low, you're not really relying on it. If I'm, if I wouldn't have any reason to lie about it. I don't gain anything. Does that right. is that relevant? Well, as so far as
1: I know, I mean, there, you know, but we could always tell ourselves stories, right? In which, like, maybe mm-hmm. there's this possibility that I can't rule out that Lucas has something to gain for pretending he's in California when he's <laughs> not. Okay, um, you know, like you could make up a story like that. Now, sure, of sure. course, just using the possibility doesn't make it likely, and so I have no reason to believe that story. Right, but if I was like a Cartesian, so Rene Descartes, who said that uh, his his method of he said, "It's only knowledge if you have absolute certainty." And for him, the way you figure out if it's a, if you have absolute certainty is you do everything you possibly can to doubt. And if yeah. you succeed in doubting even yeah. a remote possibility, if you succeed, then you don't really know it. Yeah. So you've got to rule, you've got to rule out all possible error.
0: That sounds exhausting.
1: Um, it does. Yeah.
0: And then yeah. how do you do that for every single belief that you have? I mean, it's just right.
1: Well, you well, he'd have to he, take yeah,
0: classes he, of beliefs from classes of evidence. Which is what he did.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the idea is that, um, that from the reliabilist perspective, maybe we just don't have to do all that exhausting work. Um, Now it's not a, it's not a rejection of evidence. And I I should have to emphasize that. And it is consistent with a reliabilist position to say, yeah, in in many cases, perhaps most cases, you really do need good evidence. Right. Um, but, But they would also say that at, at the end of the day, you've got to have, this is the way a reliableist might put it. You've got to have knowledge that is not based on evidence in the sense of derived from some kind of an argument where the evidence is like a premise, where you're making an inference from evidence as a premise to the conclusion, and that's your knowledge. And the reason you can't do that is because you would be off on an infinite regress pretty quickly. Because then you ask, well, the evidence itself, do you believe that? If so, then it has to be the conclusion. right Right. now now any any decent evidentialist is going to have quick responses to that so they'll say well there are some kinds there's like basic evidence that is not itself something that has to be justified via belief you know anyway i don't so this is where we're we're there's a threat to get way off into the into the woods and there's there's other more interesting stuff that i'd like to talk about (laughs) um that i think would be more relevant to your to your um to your listeners so you mentioned if you don't mind me no further, no go
0: for it i'm happy uh,
1: and you can you, if you think there's anything that i need to clarify you can pull me back okay toward the direction we are just talking about fair enough yeah what reason so I'll, i'd like to say a little bit about why i got interested specifically in the epistemology of trust and what 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 is now being called social epistemology
0: yeah uh, that's great
1: so uh trust i well, think to say trust, about it trust is, is, is your issue trust is my issue yeah i'm really interested in the phenomenon of, of trust generally and then specifically epistemic trust where it is trusting someone specifically with respect to what you believe so that you're forming beliefs based on trust in someone Mm. else's word um, is one way to put it but obviously trust gets manifested in lots of different ways but trust has been called uh, the glue of society Mm. that it trust is what holds society together our ability to trust one another in various ways yeah Um, so, so there's a lot of political theorists uh economists uh, as well as sociologists, psychologists, et cetera, that are really interested in understanding the phenomenon of trust generally. And then I really want to understand it in, at that epistemic level. And so the, and
0: when you, you when know, you know, say epistemic trust. level, you mean as a having to do
1: with knowledge and knowledge, belief, yeah. forming beliefs, relying on people as we relying on others, as we form beliefs and that kind of thing.
0: So um, obviously anything related to knowledge, which would be business, trust mm-hmm. is a huge part of business. And that would, that would have a lot to do with um, not only business ethics and stuff like that, but just entrepreneurship and, and all sorts of uh, like advertising, Mm -hmm. um, anything related to public policy of a business. Mm -hmm. um, And then also politics. Trust Mm -hmm. is a huge issue in politics Mm -hmm. as well. So, I mean, I don't want to steal your thunder, but trust is a big deal.
1: Trust is a very big deal. Yeah. yeah. And it also has a connection. So I'm a Christian. Um, and I, uh, oh, yeah, that's a good. Motivated. connection
0: too. I don't know why I left yeah. that out. You
1: know, like, it's kind
0: of important for that, too.
1: Right, right. And so when, uh, um, when I look back over the history of how I got interested in the academic subjects I got interested in, it always derives back to some non-academic concern that I had. Hmm. And so one connection that I see going way, way back was when I was a young single man at a, uh, at a church in Austin, Texas, where I was living back in the early 2000s. Um, I remember having a, a conversation with a young woman there who was kind of going through a, a crisis of faith mm-hmm. um, and was questioning her Christian commitment that she was raised in and all of this. Um, and I remember it, it it was actually, I think an email exchange that we had had, but she said, she raised this question. Why, why is faith such a big deal? Why, uh, in, so in the Christian religion, we have this idea that you have to have faith. And in the, you know, in the book of Hebrews, it says without faith is it is impossible to please God. Mm. She said, um, look, isn't believing things on faith this is using different terminology than she did, but the idea was, right. isn't that kind of intellectually vicious? Shouldn't we want really good evidence for everything that we believe? Um, and uh, just intellectually vicious, means, intellectually, intellectually vicious means intellectually vicious means, yeah, it means a bad intellectual habit. So vices you Vice can think
0: of bad. is where there's the root of vicious. So it doesn't mean like a vicious right. dog like m-
1: me yeah, well, dog has <laughs> vices. Right, but it, as, a as a dog yeah usually
0: typically just mean it's a it's mean or it'll bite you right right yeah yeah so the not that it's the, not the that it's lazy yeah, I, I don't
1: connection of, right
0: i don't look like a sleeping lazy dog and go what a vicious dog
1: <laughs> but you could
0: but you could see the deep <laughs> yeah. dark the, the roots full the full <laughs> philosophy has so many benefits you could you could say that about the lazy dog
1: right right yeah so the so the idea of a vice it's it's a contrary term yeah vicious comes from the idea of someone who has vices is a vicious person and vices come in all kinds of varieties it's just you can just think think of philosophers
0: are the only ones i the philosophers are probably the only ones i hear using the term vicious in the in the proper way or I guess in the fullest way, I I should say that. Right,
1: right, right. The, it's not that it's
0: improper. It, yeah.
1: Rooted in its etymological history.
0: Yeah, gotcha.
1: Yeah. So the uh, so um, yeah, basically it's just like, well, why isn't that a bad way to go about living your life? Is the like
0: lady in Austin? She was making a comment about faith, and isn't that? Mm-hmm. Right there in the Bible, doesn't that really teach intellectual viciousness or bad habits about? Like it teaches people
1: to be gullible. It teaches people to just you know not think for themselves. Like, did you have an answer
0: for her her at that moment, or did you? Would that Um, start you on a path?
1: Well i I had an answer. Like I did answer the question, but I don't know if I was totally satisfied with my answer. Um, And I don't remember exactly what the answer was, but it did set me on a path of trying to think about well, what is what is faith? And why might it be a good thing? Um, And so, uh, so Mm -hmm. when I got to St. Louis University, one thing that John Greco was starting to work on was called was a topic called the epistemology of testimony. So it's uh, the study of the idea that you can acquire knowledge through testimony, how does that work? Um, and so he was just starting to work on that. And I immediately saw the connection between that and the topic of believing things on faith, believing things on trust. Um, and I did come to end up coming to see faith as very closely related to trust, if not being actually the same thing, that to have faith in someone is to trust that person in various ways. Um, and that's, and your so that view. Got,
0: that's not Greco's view. That's your view.
1: Um, well, I mean, that, that is my view. I don't, I don't know if Greco's ever, I think he's used, he talks about trust, and he talks about trusting testimony. Um, but I don't think he's gotten as far as talking about the relationship between faith and trust. Uh, I, just, I just don't know. Um, there have been Christian philosophers who've worked on that in recent years. There's been a, there was a collection of essays edited by one of your former guests, Trent Doherty, right? Mm-hmm. Um so he uh he was one of the editors I think I'm trying to remember uh there's some volume I have on my shelf over here so I keep looking that way called faith and intellectual virtue it was a collection of essays um so uh so it is being addressed but but that See, was yeah I so felt, you think I that, that. Okay
0: so if if faith is trust that's mm-hmm. not vicious that's not bad
1: necessarily no, but there, but you might say, well, there can be bad forms. Like, have you ever trusted someone that you realize later you shouldn't have?
0: Well, probably. Um I, I, I have a hard time thinking you don't have of an to example tell a right, story now. right
1: now, but yeah.
0: Well, I'm trying to th- answer truthfully. Um yeah. I, I do believe that that's happened. I just don't remember a specific, uh, because it, yeah, the way you phrased it was um, someone I shouldn't have trusted, which implies that I I, um, I violated some epistemic norm, or or uh, I I was a bit vicious somehow. I didn't my character, my intellectual traits weren't as honed as they should have been, you know, ideally, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah, Yeah. okay. I'll give you an example. I, I was friends, not like really close friends, but I was friends with a pathological liar at one point. Mm -hmm. And uh, this person was a leader in the church and um, uh, some, some crazy stories came out that were hard to believe at first. (laughs) And then it, it uh, became apparent that it was true, um, and anyway, I had a conversation with them. I think the last conversation I had with him was, I said, "You know, you're a pathological liar, right?" And he said, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> then well, I was like, "Well, wait how do how do I know you're telling the truth about that?" Then you know, <laughs> but it was it was a kind of thing where he would lie about he could lie about anything for no reason. It was just mm-hmm. the weirdest thing in the world. Um, turned out he was very good at lying about things that were uh, had to do with morality and 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 stuff. But mm-hmm. as as I, you know, like he, for example, he might lie about what he ordered at Starbucks. Like, oh, what'd you get, you know? And then you can see it written on the cup and it's he, he makes something else. It's just weird. It was just, yeah. I don't understand yeah. it. Yeah. But, but in any case, um, it, it, something was broken in him. But I don't know that I should not have trusted him. It's it's really? just that it's just that I did because mm-hmm. I didn't have any reason not to and it seemed like I had reason to trust him about things and uh anyway he violated a lot of people's trust.
1: So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the the idea um I, well, the reason I brought up the question was because I don't want to say that every instance of faith or trust is good is virtuous. Okay. But I also don't want to say that every instance is bad or vicious. Rather, it's that there's such a thing as a virtuous kind of trust or virtuous faith, and there's such a thing as a vicious or bad faith. Um, And of course, you can mistrust without it being a result of some vice that you have. Uh, But that still wouldn't be an instance of good trust. Um, So the so it ended up becoming, it ends up becoming a question of, well, why do we trust? the people that we trust when we trust them. Um, What kind of habits of trust do we have? And then what kinds of, now this might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but what has to be true about the situation or you might say the society that we are in that makes it good to trust in certain ways and not good to trust in other ways. Yeah. So, uh, So I really got into this idea of social norms as a part of my research. And social norms are the norms. uh, Norms, you could think of them as like rules, although they're often implicit. They're often not explicitly stated about how we ought to behave and relate to one another. Yes. Um, So there are, uh, as I teach my ethics students here, uh, we could say there's uh, at least three different categories of norms. There's legal norms, which are explicit rules. We could call them policies that govern a community. There are social norms, which are often implicit. We learn them by observing behavior, by being raised in a certain way, yeah. um, about how we ought to behave. Yeah. Uh, and there's moral norms. Right. Now, the the existence of moral norms as a separate category from both legal and social norms is controversial in our society, but I believe it. Uh, and these are the higher norms. So every the other norms are to be judged by moral norms. And as I said, I'm a Christian, so I believe that moral moral norms. Uh, are God's norms, <laughs> God's expectations of us. Um, but I, I understand not everyone believes that. Not everybody who believes in real moral norms um, believes in believes in that. But uh, there, but the the idea there's at least this category that even if you don't believe they're real, you can understand the category of these kind of norms that stand above and govern. So both social norms and legal norms, and there can be overlap between these. Like right? if we had a Venn diagram, it would be like the overlapping circles, and we have a whole conversation about, you know, right? I, as I ask students, give me an example of one that's just here but not there, or just or in the overlap between these that's two. Good. That's, that's, that's good. That's a fun conversation to have. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, all, so rolling I
0: was, up your jeans in, in in seventh grade—that was a social norm. Apparently, I was really bad at that, so I was on the right. social outcast list because. I didn't roll my jeans up the right way in seventh grade, but that's not illegal and it's not immoral. It would be very surprising to get to heaven and (laughs) God, you have the list of sins and you're like, oh, thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me. But it turns out the one sin that I I, didn't wasn't satisfied on the cross yeah. Was not rolling up your jeans in seventh grade. That would that would be very surprising to me if I got to heaven. And, right, right.
1: And it turned well, you're out everybody are like, oh, thank you for forgiving. Thank, wait, what? <laughs> all
0: yeah. the angels had their arms crossed, and they all had their like jeans rolled up. They they had jeans on. the The angels had jeans on, and they were rolled up. And yeah. I mean, if I get to heaven and, and and Jesus has jeans on and they're rolled up, the first thing I'm going to say is, oh shit, because <laughs> I didn't that so anyway we'll edit yeah. that customer well,
1: but <laughs> yeah that's that's against the rules I'm basketball.
0: just being honest you know it's a, yeah, that's, yeah. A social, that's a that's uh, a social norm uh, the yeah
1: oh yeah yeah oh yeah, absolutely yeah so we talked about that's a conversation we have as well as norms about language and all that kind of yes, stuff <laughs> that's good so the but the um I was going to say about that example uh so in 7th grade I did roll up my jeans legs but I think I, I don't know if I'm a little bit younger than you or what I don't know but that the norm had changed.
0: I'm 27. I, t- I turn 27 every year. So does that okay. help?
1: Well, happy birthday. Do you uh, trust me? <laughs> um, so the, uh, so the, so I was made fun of for having my jeans rolled up when I sh- shouldn't have. Ah, interesting. Cause the norm had changed. So I, people would say things to me, I didn't know what they were talking about. They'd be like, Hey, you expecting a flood? And I was like, what? I was really confused. <laughs> what? I, re- I remember a, a distinct moment like some kids see me coming out of the bathroom be like, Hey, expecting a flood. Like, huh? I know. The, and the other kids laughing.
0: Were, were you the only I, one that didn't have them rolled up? Uh, or did uh, they did have the, them
1: rolled up? Yeah. I, I don't really remember. Um, well, it's but, interesting because
0: like I should have, that that's a great idea. I should have walked around my junior high school saying that to every single person. Every single other. Kid. It's a little intimidating when it's 99 against one. And you're like, but, what are you waiting yeah. for a flood? And, you know, you're the only one not getting invited to parties. You shouldn't be going to parties in seventh grade anyway. So no. no. Anyway, so, OK. Uh,
1: what were we talking about?
0: Social so- versus legal yeah. versus moral norms.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. So the so then the, que- <clears throat> the question is, are there norms or what are the norms that govern trust, trusting people? And of course, it turns out like there are such norms and of, of being trustworthy. So there's norms of trust and trustworthiness. And it turns out these are very important in any society. These are extremely important. So this
0: um, is a fourth category. So this is.
1: No, it, it would be. a Well, the question is, then. It, so there's a, the question is, what kind of norms are they? Which category would they fit in or do they or which overlapping like because they, they can fit into overlapping categories? Um, so Did you call them epistemic
0: uh, norms? Is that what you call them?
1: Well, so then there's the further question of in these norms of trust are some of them epistemic.
0: Oh, okay. Norms of trust. So okay.
1: they're epistemic okay. norms of trust. And so I became concerned with that question as well.
0: Norms of trust. And you haven't said whether these norms of trust are social, moral, or right legal. Right. You haven't said that yet.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. well, I'm treating norms of trust as a, uh, as a subset of social norms because they have okay. to do with how we interact with others. They're in so the social. The, the label social, I just mean, it's having to do with living, like interacting with other human beings. So the in Venn Di-
0: you mentioned a Venn diagram. The Venn diagram, there's three circles. It would mm-hmm. be in the social circle, the norms right. of trust. And then
1: there's the question of do, is it also in the, is it in the, where in the circle is it? Is it in the overlap with these other categories? you know, but, but it's it's in that that social circle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So the, um, but as I got into, I I guess, just to put a, put a quick conclusion to the, what I was saying earlier about this question of why is faith a good thing? If you understand faith as trust, which I now do, um, then you see that, well, in general, it is definitely a good thing that we can trust it is a good thing that we are capable of entering into trusting relationships with people. Because if we could not, we couldn't even have a society. If you had to check off on absolutely everything. I mean, you talked about Descartes method being exhausting. Uh, it would be like that. Like it would oh, be, yeah. um, it's Horrible. a quick route to just, just blanket skepticism about everything. Yeah. So we have to be able to trust at certain points but otherwise then, you,
0: you would go to the grocery store and how would you get your food? I mean, you right. trust, you yeah. have to trust. There's all yeah. sorts of trust going on there.
1: Right. So the, the way I ended up defining trust was like, well, trust is an, and is an accepted vulnerability where you realize you you are vulnerable like this person, or you mentioned grocery store. It's not just individual people. It's groups of people acting together that yeah. you can trust, trust.
0: Right. right.
1: Okay. So you go to the grocery store, you're trusting all kinds of people. And by, well, I mean, the, there's the buying of the food and then the eating the food. Yes. You are making yourself vulnerable to whoever was involved in that process that could have some, done something to make it dangerous, mm-hmm. but you accept that. And so I would call it trust. It's not just that you're aware of the vulnerability and you accept it, but it's that you do so optimistically like, yeah, I think this is going to turn out fine. Right. And so I, I would cooked, consider I cook cooked bacon in the
0: day I cooked bacon and it turned out fine.
1: Yeah. I poured, I poured some raisin bran in a bowl, put some, put some almond milk on it and ingested it. Um, you
0: put that into your body, even though you didn't see who put that in the box, right?
1: I didn't track the pro I didn't track the process. I didn't make sure nobody anywhere somehow managed to sneak a little poison in there. Some
0: Drano instead of, uh,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah. And if I, and if I did, if I couldn't do that, then man, I would, I'd have to make all my own food. I mean, I'd spend all my time just food
0: and you'd have to guard it all the time.
1: Yeah. So, so it's a wonderful thing that I can trust one another. So then we see that trust enables the division of labor and division of labor is key for all kinds of stuff. So then the question for me is, can we also divide epistemically, getting knowledge Mm -hmm. and then pass around knowledge on trust? So that I can know uh, so I can know all kinds of things that I could not otherwise know if I just doubted everyone all the time, um, but that does mean I'm vulnerable so then and certainly there's such a thing as being too like too open to vulnerability so if there if there is a threat, it's good to be able to you know defend myself from the threat if there is a threat right mm. so
0: hey, you're talking um, my language,
1: yeah. <laughs> That's right. So the so uh, so you want to be able to know where threats are and defend yourself from them, but you can't see everything as a threat all the time. Um, Sounds right. And you also you want to live in a society where there, there are corresponding for the norms of trust, there are corresponding norms of trustworthiness. And many people will say, probably rightly so, that the norms of trustworthiness are the more important ones. Hmm. Uh, because trusting is going to really not serve you well if you're in a society that doesn't have adi- adequate or might say corresponding norms of trustworthiness. So, um, mm-hmm. so the fact that we can rely on others to be trustworthy when we trust them is really important, but they're only going to be trustworthy if, if they themselves are, we might say, responsive to norms of trustworthiness or have been, have been shaped according to norms of trustworthiness. Gotcha. I'm so track,
0: I'm tracking with this, yeah,
1: yeah, and a lot of that, and this. Is, so this is just to make a connection back to the reliabilism. A lot of this is stuff that we don't have immediate access to, uh, in the sense that, like, I don't have internal access necessarily to all the norms that are governing trust and trustworthiness in my society, and whether I do or not, a young child almost certainly would not, yeah, reflectively know what the norms are, no, and yet, not reflectively, like, right. And yet it seems like those norms are setting up the case in which it can be an intellectually good thing for me to trust what someone says, at least in certain categories, in certain ways, um, and then proceed to live my life accordingly as if that's true. In other words, believe it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, You know, so so I mentioned children. So this is where in the literature on this topic, the case of children gets a lot of emphasis. Um, Like, uh, because the idea is, you don't want to make your demands of what it takes to know so stringent that you end up ruling out, you know, kids, at,
0: kids knowing
1: things, you think kids of knowing things and knowing mm-hmm. things on the basis of testimony. Of trust. We, we want
0: kids to be able to know things in our theory. <laughs> yes. In general,
1: that's you can you can quote me on that. I want kids to be able to know things. Um, that's very so.
0: common sense. A lot of stuff we learn is in childhood. Right now, what's the benefit of spelling all this out? The benefit is so that we come to an awareness of what the norms of trustworthiness are and we reflect on Yeah, that could
1: be a benefit. It can help in diagnosing when things go wrong, um, whether that's in society or among individual relationships. Um,
0: Isn't that kind of a point for internalism a little bit? Because uh, it sounds like we want to know, be able to reflect on this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just because you're using the, um, some of the, I guess you could say some of the insights of externalism doesn't mean that you want everything to be external, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, j- just like that, just like if someone's not an evidentialist, it doesn't mean that they think evidence is unimportant. Right. Yeah. So okay. uh, I gotcha. you still think evidence is very important. You might still think like, yeah, it would be good to be able to be aware of this stuff, even if you don't have to be in order to, in order to be enabled by it to know things. Um, so um yeah anyway
0: well it sounds like uh, is it fair to say that you you um you have a rough i a common sense understanding of how this goes and you're trying to match up with your work with that somehow um like if, if like you said Kids know things that that seems like a very common sense thing to say. And yeah. you th- seem to think that that's the benefit of your theory, that it helps us understand how that could be.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, and but also that it, I guess you could say when it comes to the academic debate one thing that that you tend to do so I, I mean earlier I talked about how it's it's a little bit problematic that you have to build a reputation by you know attacking other people's views uh, <laughs> nevertheless it is something that like if you think somebody's wrong it's good to be able to point out where you think they go wrong um and so I think that that theories of knowledge or testimonial knowledge that rule out children knowing things because they trusted appropriate objects of trust uh, I think that would be a bad thing for that theory that shows that, that, that there's some kind of problem there. Um, so that's one of the benefits is, uh, is to be able to say, like, okay, well, how how does this help us understand knowledge more generally? Um, another benefit would be, um, well, I mentioned before, another benefit is pointing out the how things go wrong in society more generally. Um, and so, Our society, as you're probably aware, is having a real trust crisis. Yes. And uh, but this has been going on for a long time. So when I was doing my research, I was so this was uh, I I was working on my dissertation between roughly 2009 was probably when I first started putting together ideas. And then I defended it in 2015. So that was uh, about seven years ish, um, six, seven years on the yeah probably about six years of actual working on the dissertation. Um, and so in the process, I was reading all this literature on trust and research on social trust and things like that. And I was reading stuff from like the, the eighties and nineties that were talking about the crisis of trust in society. And that there's actually, there's these measures of trust. And of course you can debate how reliable they are, but measures of social trust showing a consistent, just down, like from the time they start measuring them the whole time, they've just been going down and down and down. Um, and by social trust here is meant Usually trust in the institutions of society, government, business, religion, for that matter, like organ, organized religion, yeah. uh, just a steady decline of trust. Um, and where this kind of trust is often understood as maybe maybe this is worth saying at this point. So when, I, when we talk about trust, I see trust as involving, I already mentioned the optimism, right? Like I'm vulnerable, but I'm optimistic in spite of my vulnerability that I'm still going to get whatever it yeah. is I'm trusting you for. We're Um, talking about
0: the grocery store. Yeah.
1: Right. But there's, there's two possible sources of, uh, of failure, I guess you could say, uh, my trust in you might end up being disappointed because you are just completely incompetent in the matter where I trust you. Like that's a possibility, right? Uh, like you didn't mean to be untrustworthy. You just failed. Like that's a possibility. So when you trust someone, you're assuming you're optimistic about their competence, but then when it comes to at least human beings, as opposed to like machines or something, you're, uh, you're also trusting their goodwill. So someone might be perfectly competent, but not motivated to actually be trustworthy where you are concerned. Uh, so there might be some way their will is working against you. Uh, and it seems like when it comes to the trust in society, sometimes it's competence, but often it's, they, it's a distrust of the other person's will. Yeah. So there was this there was this uh theorist who was pretty influential um in some of this conversation named Russell Hardin. And I forget where he where he like what institution he was with. And I even forget if he was primarily a philosopher or a social theorist or, or what his role was. Um but he he defined trust and I don't I don't really agree with his general definition but I think there's an important insight in it where he said that you trust somebody um if you think that their interests include your interests. So he called this the encapsulated interest view. So if I think that whatever's in your interest, it is in your interest to act for my interest, then I will trust you. Um, now, I think that there's more to it than that. Um, and there's a lot more to be said, but but I think that that point is correct as far as it goes. And it's certainly true that if I think your, your interests are contrary to my interest, then I'm gonna be less inclined to trust you. And it seems like that's where a lot of the breakdown is, is we no longer as a society believe that the people in charge, or uh, running, or actually carrying out the day-to-day business of government, of at least large corporate businesses, of uh, in many cases religious institutions, uh, just not believing that what that their interests are in our interests. A lot of people don't believe that. Like, like the, you know, if you ever hear someone who says like, "Well, the politicians are just out for themselves," right? That's a way of saying they're serving their own interest, and their interests are not in my interest. If they were. And, well, yeah. this is, this is the, just an interesting uh, side thing. But the uh, um, people, and so the trust in politicians has been going like this, except when it comes to people's own representatives in Congress, that's how steady. <laughs> so people tend to trust their own representatives. They just don't trust anyone else's representatives. Right, so, but then there's a right explanation for why that might be. They might think if it's my representative, then our interests do align. But if it's somebody else's representative, our interests don't align. And so I don't trust them, but I do trust the one who's from my hometown and is motivated to keep me happy. See, So um, so so Russell uh, Harden's encapsulated interest can kind of explain that dynamic.
0: Yeah, with, with Congress, there's a whole lot more going on there <laughs> with, with specifically yeah. Congress. It, it's a it's a yeah. it, it's called uh, the phenomenon's called the uh, well. It's linked up with what Mo Fiorina, Morris Fiorina called in his little book on Congress, the, the decline of the uh, the the marginal district, the vanishing marginal district, where the inco- there's a there's a phenomenon with Congress, that's the House of Representatives, especially. I'm not sure about the Senate in particular, but I'm talking about the House, where th- incumbency confers some kind of benefit on real uh on running again for re-election uh let me uh pause this really quick
1: okay
0: all right so we are talking about trust confidence in people their competence and their goodwill Mm -hmm. some people cash that out in terms of um interests uh, aligning, I think I'd be a little bit hesitant. I'm, I'm skeptical about that because yeah, I'm not sure what it means for my interest to align with other people. Um, mm-hmm. and it seems like goodwill just means that, uh, not necessarily that we have the same interest, but that it means something else I think, but that's just my first take on it. But we're barely. No, I, I scratching agree. The, I, I think it's. Uh, yeah, I do yeah. think
1: that's in, that's insufficient. I think there's an insight there that can be helpful. Okay. At least in some contexts, but
0: we're barely um, scratching the surface here. I can already tell because right. we we're talking yeah. about Congress and we we're talking about the vanaging marginal districts. Marginal districts are the ones that you call blue or purple. I'm sorry, they're not blue. They're purple. Oh, the, the districts yeah. tend to, to. There's some marginal districts where. Uh-huh. Um. Uh. It could go either way, (laughs) you know, um, but, uh, there's a, there's not as many as there used to be. And, um, incumbency seems to have some kind of benefit of, uh, the the person running for reelection. And so, you know, people look at this and they try to explain what that is, what's going on there. Um, but uh it's a it's a little puzzling to me i'm not sure if I've figured it all out uh, it's It's troubling to me, but to be honest with you it's it's very troubling. Congress is troubling to me, yeah some yeah. people want to uh, limit the uh, number of times you can run for reelection called term limits. I'm not convinced that that's an answer to the problem to me uh, because so would the
1: idea there be the idea might be that the longer someone's in the more i mean just to put it in, in in terms of like my my the stuff i'm talking about you might say that like, is yeah. it they think that they become less trustworthy because they become more you know rooted in the system or something and then their and then their their motivational structure gets realigned in a different way that means they're no yeah. longer really working for the good of the people so their their interests have all gotten out of whack and so
0: mm-hmm. something like that it's pretty pretty close i would say um yeah the last thing you said, I think is close, um, about the structure, how the structure, I I think you can trust congressmen and women to do what's in their interest. I do think that you you just have to be aware of what that is. That's you you can trust them,
1: but what are you, what are you trusting them to do? Right. right. (laughs) So the way you use that, use the word trust. Sometimes we use it that way, but that's, um, that's what some people call predictive trust. Well, all you mean is you can reliably predict that this will happen. Okay. Um, but that's a little, but that's a different kind of trust than. That's a I'm Placing my trust in you. You know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. So, well, I don't yeah. place
0: my trust in my car. Co- I've never. I never right. have. I've never right. done that. Right. Um, I look at it as like you're. You should be pre- just predicting, trying to predict what what right. will happen.
1: Well, one thing thing that I learned in my research is there are some people, some social theorists like economists and others who that's just what they think trust is. It's just the ability to reliably predict what someone would do. And that's what it means to trust someone is to be able to predict their behavior. And so I really thought that was insufficient to catch the full, like the full, the full concept of trust, especially as it's, as, as it would relate to like having faith in someone or something like that.
0: I don't think that's how the founders looked at just specifically government officials, elected officials, um, because mm-hmm. um, they had a very skeptical view of human nature. They had a biblical mm-hmm. view of human nature, really. I mean, mm-hmm. the Federalist Papers, um, it, it comes out in, in those. Uh, but yeah, the way they designed government was um, that.
1: And can I ask you a question about that real quick? I realize sure. this is uh, this is me interviewing you now, but, I, but I'm curious about <laughs> this. Um, so because you're, you're the expert on the you're the guy who has the uh, the political theory expertise uh, relative to me anyway. Um, so the uh, uh, I'm glad yeah, I have I'm glad my
0: evil plan to present myself that way has succeeded.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. You've manipulated me into that by, uh, by working with a system that <laughs> it aligns with my interest. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Does it align with yours, though? Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. So, so, you, so, you say, so there's this. Uh, so the idea that you just mentioned was that the founders um, uh, had had a biblical view of, of human nature. Yep. Um, and so the. Um, well, there, there's a view of human nature that was very common in that sort of enlightenment era that, um, and, and I could see, well, let, let, me, let me put it this way by, by a, 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 a short ante- anecdote. So one thing that I, that I find really fascinating to do is find old history books and read the last paragraph or two. Mm. Because that's wow. where the author of the history book puts in their vision for the future, where they think all this is headed. And so there's this history book that I have that had belonged to, I think, I think it belonged to my grandfather. Um, but he wow. had obviously gotten it from like his father or grandfather. So it was like published in 1904, I think. And it was like a love it, love it something something edition of something. Or it was I think it was a a later edition of something originally published in the very late 1800s.
0: Was it scholarly so, or was it some yeah? Well, guy? it
1: was a text. It was like a textbook. I oh, mean, it was cool. authors. It was written to be. Um, I assume like a high school textbook, maybe okay. a university textbook. I don't know. I think it was called Drury's, D-R-U-R-Y, I think, like history of the world or something like that. Um, and the very last paragraph says that the, uh, the present outlook is that, um, I think it's put this way, reason and enlightened selfishness will that last triumph over all of the suspicions that have caused wars and the era of universal peace will at last be ushered in. Huh. Um, and evidence for this was like the European Parliamentary Union has been meeting, um, there's an international court now, um, You know, so things are just about to get really, really good, 1904. So obviously we know that's, a, that's
0: typical later. of a of a progressive mindset and the progressive mm-hmm. that's the progressive era that it's called the progressive era and um if my my um examiner graders ever watch this uh at least one of them will be the the one that was a democrat she was a liberal democrat she uh, she's a great professor. Uh, uh, Love her. She taught my uh, American political development course. Uh, the the other guy, my mentor Michael Yuleman, um, had a different view of the progressives. Uh, but the progressive era was, she would say, would say, would, was that it was um, it wasn't just one thing. It was many different things. But typically, when we think of the progressive era it would include something like a very optimistic view of the future. If we just tweak certain structures, it's all going to be fine. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's the, not the, the view sorry, of the founders. Yeah. The, the founders. Right, yeah.
1: So I was going to try to make the yeah. connection because they have this idea yeah. that it's enlightened selfishness. So there's selfishness, but it's now enlightened selfishness. Yeah, sure. So, so the, well, this was the question I was learning about. So this, the founders would have assumed selfishness, right. But that, and so you've got to have checks and balances to, you know, to mitigate the uh, the selfishness that people are naturally applying toward. And I take that that's what we like, like a biblical view is the sin, the sin nature that we're turned in on ourselves that we're, uh, Well, uh, am I understanding you correctly so far?
0: Yeah, sure. In terms of American government. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about the federal structure.
1: Right. So
0: I'll just, I'll just restrict myself to the federal structure. Right. Okay. So you enough. have separation of powers. Mm-hmm separate a lot of people start with checks and balances that's actually not you start with separation of powers you separate the power
1: executive yeah the The reason is is because
0: people are such that if they have too much of these these different varieties of power in the same hands that's the definition of tyranny that's Mm -hmm. what madison says and i think federal is 48 or 47 49 one of those i think 47 And so that's how he defines tyranny is, is the accumulation of all powers, legislative, judicial and executive in the same hands. And and it could be in the same hands, whether few or many didn't matter how many people had that power and the same kinds of power so that they were very suspicious of accumulated, accumulating the different types of power in the same hands. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe that government should be powerful. A lot of people miss Mm -hmm. that, too. A lot of people say we should have a small government and a Mm -hmm. weak government. That's actually not the founder's view. The founder's view was that that for the right ends and with the right accountability, the government can be very powerful. Like, for example, in waging war, Mm -hmm. there's a perfect example where the executive branch needs to have as much power as it needs to win the war (laughs) and you can't say what that is ahead of time they had these they they didn't all agree i mean the the founders were arguing amongst themselves all the time and so they one of one of the debates they had was how big the army should be Mm -hmm. and whether we should have a standing army and is that scary and a threat and um some somebody said we should cap the the amount of the army at some arbitrary number of, of troops and George Washington was supposed to have said in the in the Constitutional Convention. He was supposed to have. He didn't say much, but um, he was supposed to have said that uh, he stood up and everybody looked at him and he said, "Well, tell you what. Um, if we put something in there about uh, it's illegal to be invaded with the same amount of people plus one, then I'll go along with that." but you can't (laughs) and everybody. And then quickly it was scrapped. It was like, yeah, well, this is absurd. You're talking about war and you can't predict that stuff. So, but yeah, I mean, just um, in terms of uh, all of the machinations that they put into the thing. And I think they did the best they could. I mean, you know, they're just people, but uh, I think they did a pretty good job and, and, and they were not naive. They were mm-hmm. not naive. And so right. when people would talk about, I, do I trust my congressman? I mean, I, 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 I don't trust anybody in government. What are you talking? I don't trust the guy that works at the post office. Um, I don't trust the, the people that do the, all sorts of things. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I guess um, like the people at YouTube is it interesting. I just had a, a video removed yesterday. Uh, that was a three hour conversation with Brad Cummings, the 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 producer of the movie "The Shock," we talked about you any better, number. You better of
1: not things. mention why. You better not. Yeah, yeah. Why. That's right, right, right. <laughs> and he
0: said two words starting with E F, something to do with, and he didn't even say which year or what level of office. And he he just mentioned his view about um, problems with, uh, and and There's
1: so social choice of leaders.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can just share my screen and share the, the email that I got. And it, it says that uh, um, this two sentences was the reason to take down a, a video of three hours. And that had nothing to do with this specific issue. And I, and by the way, the, the sentences did not say this, what they're saying mm-hmm. anyway, but even if they did, I mean, the, the fact that the, the medium is going to prevent any discussion of that mm-hmm. is prima facie evidence to me of not a goodwill, uh, or not no competence. Uh, so I don't mm-hmm. trust you two, basically,
1: or now, a nice combination of the both. What's up a nice combination of the both perhaps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's just the oddest thing. Like how, how do you have a conversation? Are we supposed to have a conversation about everything else, but, but that, mm-hmm. um, how do you even double check? How can anybody somehow double check and see if that's really <laughs> yeah, a violation or whatever, even. And know? I
1: noticed at the very beginning of the email, it says we think, so there's automatically yeah. backing off of the, like, we know, that's usually we have say that's a, a way of signaling i'm not going to claim knowledge here yeah but i have no, a friend you yeah, I have I friend a friend
0: that's a rapper in la and he grew up in compton south central and i keep trying to get him to come on here and i'll i will succeed eventually mm-hmm. um but he uh he texted me last night and he said that the that youtube will allow uh degradation of women and rap music um any number of obscene and harmful, um, songs and rap stuff. And, and yet, uh, be, uh, you can't talk about this one thing starts with E F, you know, regarding, um, a recent contest for a certain office in the United States. So anyway, so that's what we're dealing with. Um, I've I've had issues with trust in uh, higher academics too, like just in terms of. Um, so I, I see the application for this trust issue everywhere, and I'm I'm guessing you did too. That's why you got mm-hmm. into this. You got into this right. trust business, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's
1: right. Do, is
0: there anything that you've discovered in this that w- that was surprising to you?
1: Um, you know that's a good question because, uh. Like, I don't know that any conclusions I arrived at are some that I would be like, wow, I did not expect that. Um, it might just be way, learning ways of thinking about it that I thought were helpful. Um, I mean, there's stuff I didn't know, obviously. A lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, but the, the idea that, uh, I, I think one, maybe one thing that, I, that was not surprising but maybe maybe I'm almost surprised at how the thing I already believed is just so, even that much more obviously true, uh, is the absolute indispensability of trust for any good relationship whatsoever. And so if I were to go all the way back to that question about, well, why, why would God say we have to have faith? It turns out that everybody has to have faith um, if you're going to have any kind of a good relationship at all. And so it applies to being rightly related to God. It applies Well, if you're at least if you're humans like us, we're limited creatures. And that's why, because we're so limited and so finite, we are so vulnerable that we have to be able to trust others. If we try to live within the bounds of our vulnerability without trusting others, then, you know, it. it, it, I guess you could say it would be, it's not quite the Hobbesian phrase of, I think it was Hobbes, life would be nasty, brutish, and short. That's the, you know, in the state of nature, not depend, uh, you know, yeah. the, the war of all against all, but, uh, but it'd be something kind of like that, like life would be, I don't, I guess it would be nasty in short, mm-hmm. <laughs> You wouldn't be able to do that much for yourself. If you were just determined to do stuff for yourself. Um, so that, and, but then when it comes to, if we think beyond just staying alive or surviving or mm-hmm. for that matter, having comforts beyond just survival, just having a good relationship with someone. Yeah. I'm just having a friendship or a good spousal relationship or something like that. Like there's got to be trust. You've got to accept vulnerability and you've got to accept it optimistically with the idea that yeah, I've got to trust and I'm not going to, and this is where it can, where where the reason, one of the reasons why it's not that an evidentialist internalist could not also do this. I'm sure they could. But one of the reasons why I felt like it fit nicely with that virtual reliabilist framework is because you accept that I'm not going to have complete transparency on all, like, I'm not going to be able to first vet everybody for trustworthiness. Right. I'm just not going to be able to do that. So I've got to accept my vulnerability. And at a fundamental level, I've got to accept it fundamentally. Like, there's no getting behind it to absolutely guarantee that this person is trustworthy, that this institution is trustworthy, that for that matter, God is trustworthy. Right? Like, I am fundamentally limited. So... I might be able to do some things, and it is wise to do some things up to a certain point to try to vet for trustworthiness, mm-hmm. but I'm going to hit my limit. And yeah. when I hit my limit, I can either become just complete skeptic, I can back off, I can become fearful, or I can, to borrow a phrase, step out in faith and go ahead anyway. Right. Uh, so is that, does that make sense?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you gave us the uh, title for the episode, Everybody Has to Have Faith. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. I think you said that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think uh, the issue of trust is central. I think it's really helpful to think through in a disciplined way how that is and why that is. And if for another reason, maybe we come to just realize that and accept that in a deeper way. And then maybe what we can do is work toward Strengthening our bonds of trust, if that's possible, is that possible? You think?
1: Yeah. So this is where. Is there anything
0: we can this do. Where
1: maybe the the practical payoff, uh, which is something I'm still working on, especially if it goes beyond like uh, philosophy of religion concerns and so forth, is okay. Well, then, if you think there's a, tr- a crisis of trust in society, what do you do about it? Yeah. Um, and some people sometimes the questions put almost like this: How can we get the people to be more trusting? Of course, the better question is, how can we become more trustworthy? How can About about the things that we should
0: be trustworthy about.
1: Right. Yeah. Because uh, so some, I mean, there are some government reports you can find out there that delve into, yeah, what can we do to increase the trust of the people in government? That don't necessarily get into, well, okay, let's maybe the reason people don't trust various institutions because they really aren't trustworthy and the institutions need to change in some way to become more trustworthy. Now, in some cases, it may be just that people have a bad perception. Like I, I do think that um, something that I know you're very aware of is that pe- in general, people in the, the United States today, people who have grown up in the United States today have very little idea of how the government is supposed to work. Like you mentioned separation of powers. Like why yeah. is there separation of powers? Um, and so you have people who will, basically like for instance, people are saying, well, maybe we should elect the members of the Supreme Court. Why should that go through the process it goes through? Why shouldn't we just directly try to elect justices the way that we do, um, uh, you know, the president or something? Mm -hmm. Um, And of course there's reasons why it's structured the way it is, but if people don't know what those reasons are, then they're gonna be suspicious. Um, so then so there's. Yeah. And is, and, is and some of the to... some of
0: the way it is is not good. And it's recent. It's not it's not. Um, like, for example, televising the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, hearings, yeah. that's recent. Mm-hmm. And, and there wasn't there weren't these problems before. It, it used to be. I mean, like to, if you go back to John F. Kennedy's uh, only nomination to the Supreme Court was Byron White and his his uh, committee hearing lasted, I think, an hour and he smoked cigarettes during it. It was not a problem. It was not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he he uh, he um, this is a Democrat president Mm -hmm. who appointed Byron White and Byron White was one of the dissenters in Roe versus Wade. A A lot of a lot of people don't know this.
1: I did not. I did not know. The that. last
0: I'm, Democrat, the last Democrat that that was had any kind of sanity on abortion. So
1: that's um, well, just because he was Catholic.
0: <laughs> well, there's a lot of Catholics like Ted Kennedy. Yeah. You know, I mean, Ted Kennedy right, switched. Right. I mean, it, yeah. uh, Joe Biden, supposedly Catholic. Mm-hmm. I know you're kidding. But um, yeah, but yeah, there, there's a when you add cameras, actually, mm-hmm. it changes the dynamic. It now becomes a circus, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: becomes more of a circus and and the senators are performing. Yeah. And it's even worse with YouTube. Now it's even worse because Mm -hmm. now those things get spliced and diced, taken out of context. Mm -hmm. There's, there's some pretty troubling technology on the rise and I'm sure you're all over this as far as what you're thinking about. There's technology that uh, Mm -hmm. supposedly will allow fakes yeah
1: the deep videos
0: is you're aware of this okay Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't surprise me that you're all over this so this I think it's going to become more challenging in terms of trust because the media the mediation of technology like you said you don't believe I'm really in San Francisco even though the Golden Gate Bridge is presented very clearly behind me <laughs> <Right>. um <laughs> there are i would say i'm an evidentialist so i would say there's indications though that that's yeah. not really the way it is for example right, you right. See and i would agree with,
1: with and i would agree with you yeah, right? yeah yeah i would say i would say i do have good reason you just pay, good it, to doubt pay a little
0: bit more attention right. you know but uh, yeah, my, yeah. but anyway um but uh i i wanted to ask you eventually before we get off that whether you're an evidential or whether you're an internalist or, or whether you kind of did. Yeah. So
1: I I would say if I I would say I'm not, not in the sense that I'm like a convicted anti internalist or evidentialist, just more like I'm not convinced.
0: Of internalism.
1: Right. Internalism or evidentialism or the combination of the two. You don't have enough evidence. It really has to do with the fundamental claims of like, um, you know, that, that this is going to explain all of our knowledge as opposed to, it's going to account for a lot of it. Right. Um, so the, uh, Fair enough. yeah,
0: I just wanted to ask you that. I, and and one, one
1: t- thing t- that I, I found as a benefit from taking the approach I did is that I, I think one of the results for me, because I mentioned how I'm naturally skeptical earlier. And like I, you know, I, I am one of those people who has a sort of a inter, like a natural Cartesian bent to like look for. And, and yet
0: you're a Christian, so a lot of people would be like, "What is going on here? You're skeptic, <laughs> and yet you're."
1: Yeah. You so believe... was Descartes. So was Descartes. Yeah. So. Uh, so uh, yeah. So the uh, so what's my, going on with that? Yeah. Well, so so one thing is one conclusion that all my research led me to was the idea of well, I shouldn't find it surprising that there are some things that I can't drill all the way to the very bottom and show you from the bottom up exactly why I can be absolutely confident in every bit of this or why, you know, like, I, like I, um, I believe it is grounded in reality, but I can't show you that. And I can't show me that at the most fundamental levels. At the most fundamental levels, I just accept on trust. And in this case, it is getting closer to a blind trust. Now, I think trust is consistent with having evidence. So some people try to oppose the two, like if you have evidence then it's not trust. Some people talk about trust that way, but um, you're smiling to an angel that just,
0: <laughs> I saw a God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so did you have an experience, a powerful, like religious experience that's really at the root of this? Or did you no. like, as a kid, did Jesus appear to no, you? Like, so or... I
1: was raised, I was raised in a Christian family and, I, be, and you might see because of that, I've always been a little, a little bit skeptical of my own convictions because like, well, this is the way I was raised. So, of course, people tend to believe the way they were raised to believe. Um, wow. And so that's so that's been part of my like anxiety in the background the whole time is like maybe I'm being really being irrational, even though this is the way the world seems to me. Yeah, maybe it's a kind of irrational. Maybe I've just been, you know, brainwashed into believing all this stuff.
0: Were you raised communist?
1: Um, no, and I'm not a communist.
0: See, oh. how can you <laughs> trust your non-communism? Exactly. yeah exactly See? exactly
1: yeah 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 so the um yeah so that, i didn't have any great religious i mean i've had I, I guess i've had normal religious experiences like you know like the stunning answer to prayer that happens that you're just like you know That's of cool. course i could explain that away like i could play the skeptic but no. why you right. know yeah. uh if i think there's a better explanation um yeah, so, but, but I also am not, I'm not surprised that, look, I'm a limited finite being, and I do believe that, you know, I believe there's a God that is behind everything, and that is holding me and you together at this moment. Uh, um, and I could give you various arguments, like I'm a fan of natural theology, for example, but I put it in terms of a fan because I do think it has limits. I think it's helpful for certain things, maybe not helpful for some other things. But you know, but I could do that. And I think I found a lot of help in going through natural theology arguments. Natural there, theology
0: like, is like true. The natural
1: theology. Yeah. So that's the arguments. attempt to in general, the attempt to just know things about God based on common human reason and experience. So without appealing to any kind of special revelation, whether that's scripture or personal religious experiences or whatever. Just looking at like, okay, what's you know, like, you know, common human. So like what's experiences common to me and other people. Um, and then thinking about it really hard. Do you, uh, can't it, you know that God exists? Can you know anything about God? That's so you think that's I mean, a legitimate
0: right? discipline?
1: I, oh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's legitimate. I, do, I am sympathetic with those who think it has limited, let's say, apologetic value or evangelistic value, right? So people who would, because there are some people who think like, well, if you're going to do apologetics, which is the defense of the Christian faith, right? right. Um, or if you're going to do evangelism, so spreading the gospel of Christ, uh, then this is the way to do it is like, you know, start running out uh, arguments for the existence of God and convince everybody.
0: Um, and I think it has,
1: it might have some value for some people, but it's kind of limited. So um, are you
0: like more on planning side? It sounds like you're like on planning the,
1: you're the rela- the
0: warranted Christian belief kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So planning has been, yeah, he's been influential on me for sure. Yeah.
0: Well, he's um, a guy, he's retired. Not, he was, he was but a guy he did say, for yeah. a long time. You can look. Yeah, up. But,
1: but he but he did say, but I'm not like a presuppositionalist. So the presuppositionalist is the one. Said, yeah. yeah. Cornelius Van Til, um, John Frame, others who says, look, it's just a matter of presuppositions. Everybody has their presuppositions. We can't directly. Um,
0: everybody begs the question against everybody. <laughs> yeah,
1: Everybody begs the question. And so and so all you can do is kind of just look at like examine the worldview as a whole and ask internal coherence kind of questions. So but you
0: don't go that, that far. I don't go that far.
1: Right. And planning it himself did you're aware. He had that right. paper, like two dozen or so theistic arguments. And he was like, I think they're good arguments. I think yeah, there's, yeah. um, yeah. you know, I just don't think you have to have them. So I'd be on that, on that band. Like, I don't think you have to have, you don't have to have that, but I do think it's there and it's available and it's good.
0: God, God created people in such a way that they could have an experience and believe in God and not quite understand exactly what just happened. Yeah. And be totally rational in that belief yeah. in God.
1: Right, right.
0: That's Planning's view. That's is that your view? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, I remember reading a story about this. Was it was actually written in some magazine by someone who had been an atheist and was and became a theist. So someone who does believe in God. Uh, not a, didn't become a Christian or anything. Just started believing in God and was trying to and was writing an article explaining it. And this person said they were just in the bathroom, like in the shower, Hmm. taking a shower and just all of a sudden realized they believe in God. (laughs) And just called out to their significant other in the other room. Hey, I believe in God now. And the person's like, that's nice, honey. (laughs) But but it was just like, and they just described it as like, yeah, I just suddenly realized this is the way I see, like, you know, it wasn't like a religious experience. It was just like, yeah, this is the way I really do see things. There's got to be a God. And I can't give, and it wasn't like I'm giving you an argument. It's just like, that. just somehow that makes more sense. Now, maybe this person could give it, like, maybe if they sat down and thought really hard about it, they could start to identify, ah, here's the exact thoughts that lead me to that conclusion, right? But they wouldn't have to do that. And and from my perspective, that could have been, now I don't have to say it was in that particular case, but that could have been just like, yeah, there was some kind of internal God-given ability to perceive truth that for whatever reason got activated in the shower in that moment, you know? Yeah. Or it could have been a, a bunch of so, things coming along. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That would be an intellectual virtue in the sense of an ability to perceive and acquire truth. Yes.
0: Well, if God did design the world and that's part of our view, God designed the world. He created us, he created all the epistemic faculties that we rely on, for example, getting around like sensory faculties that are ordinarily very helpful in coming to true beliefs about the world that we live in. And um, I mean, without hearing, for example, or seeing, be hard for me to trust you. It'd be hard for me to know even very much about you at all, to be honest with you. Um, so God created all that in such a way that it's ordinarily reliable in a certain context. I might see a flower and 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 be overcome with its beauty and, and intricacy and delicacy and all those kind of aesthetic properties that I'm and I might not be aware that I'm forming an inference there that God exists, or maybe it's not an inference, maybe it's just like a causal sequence. <laughs> That, i don't know exactly how to cash it out but it seems like maybe i could be sort of unconscious about um what i believe about what nature can squirt out and what kind of things aesthetic properties really are and think that it's a transcendental thing i'm looking at or i'm acquainted with somehow beauty uh doesn't seem like it's a th- if it's not reducible to anything biological or chemical or physical,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I'm aware of that, maybe I can't articulate it maybe. Uh, but I think you're saying that you don't even have to be aware of it. Just that God can kind of flip a switch and, and your soul yeah. and you see everything, right. you see that he exists yeah. and he created the world. I mean, that yeah, that, I, that is very compelling to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I quite. It seems like uh, philosophy would just be about answering objections. Then, at some point, or uh, yeah. swat, swatting away. Well,
1: you can. You can also take. The, uh, you, you see that phrase right there.
0: Credo you... ut intelligent?
1: Intelliagum. Okay. Yeah, Intelliagum. So that's the Latin phrase that means. Um, I. I think. I think it's the one that means I believe. In order to understand, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, it's it sometimes, I mean, it, I don't actually know Latin. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> told me what this means to them. I've always uh, wanted to so study it's, Latin. Uh, in order to understand, I believe. I believe in order to understand. Sounds right. So it's a not, I understand first, then I believe. It's it's the other way around. And so this is a phrase that's associated with Augustine. And then I, I think this exact quote comes from uh, Anselm. Uh, uh, so these are both um, Augustine, of course, the St. Augustine. And Saint Anselm was like 100 AD ish. Um, So the uh, but the idea there was I already I I think at about a thousand years. So faiths, right? I think you said one hundred. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. One thousand. That's all right. Sorry about that. Um, So the uh, so faith seeking understanding the idea of like well I believe it but I can seek a deeper understanding of
0: it. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so someone who has that kind of experience might be like okay well I find that I believe in God now let me seek to understand that more deeply. And then they might end up doing like some natural theology or, or for that matter, just doing straight, straight up theology. Um, And the benefit
0: of that would be just becoming more, more mature
1: or. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. Like, well, what is the benefit? Like, why would you want to seek understanding if you have faith? Um, And I I think part of it is an idea of maturity. It's um, it's growing up. Um, It is. Uh, It could be becoming more confident in one's faith. There might be something. Yeah, I was going to say that, like more trust. Um, Actually,
0: it deepens trust, maybe.
1: Right, right. And so this is this is actually one thing. Again, I don't know if it's something I was surprised by in my study, but how many people seem to think that that trust is like opposed to having evidence and reasons, Um, and uh, and how I came to conclude like that that just can't be right. Um, so, so consider, for example, someone who says, well, look, if I, if I trust, then I can't know if I know, then there's no longer trust involved. Um,
0: that's not quite right.
1: Uh, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't seem quite right. No. Uh, uh, so I can, I think I can know through trusting, but if I know, but then it, I, I know it's, um, but I know through trust. We know through trust. Um, that's a So good some one. people would say that's like, good, when it comes to, title. what's that, what was that one?
0: we know through trusting.
1: Yeah. So the, um, not in spite of trusting, Right. Yeah. So, but there are some who would say like, well, look, if you, they would apply that to like believing what someone else says. And they would say like, well, look, if I know that you're trustworthy, then my belief, if you suppose you tell me you're in California, And then I say, well, I believe that Lucas is in California because, you know, that's a trust based belief. It's a faith based. It's faith based. It's a a faith based belief. I I trust Lucas when he says he's in California. They say, ah, but you have good reasons to trust Lucas. Therefore, it's not really trust. What you're actually doing is you are just relying. You're making an evidentialist kind of argument in your head. And therefore, it's not trust. Um, To which I would respond, wait a minute. Are you saying that if you know someone is trustworthy, then you can't trust them? Are you saying you can only trust people who you who you don't know are trustworthy? It seems <laughs> to be like the opposite is true, right? Yeah, it's yeah. easier to trust people when you know they're trustworthy. Yes, right. So now I would yeah. say, this. if I knew independently from your word, like if I traveled to California, knocked on your door, and opened it, and then looked at you standing there in California, then that would not be. I would no longer be basing my belief on trust because I see it. So I, I now. Yeah, might still it might still be trust in my own perceptual ability, but it's no longer trust in you and your word. Yes. Right. So if I can see it by myself independently of you, then, of course, it's not a trust, basically, because I have to depend on you for it to be trust in you. But I have but but that is consistent with me having all the best evidence in the world that you are trustworthy. Right. Doesn't make it any less trust when I believe what you say. It's still trust because I'm still vulnerable to you. Now, I might have I might have reason to think that you will, you know, excellent reason to think you're not going to abuse that vulnerability.
0: Well, some people are very yeah, uh, that all makes sense. Some people brings up the issue of manipulation, especially Mm -hmm. like in politics and just Mm -hmm. in business, like in ads, advertising just seems like a bunch of manipulation and we can all see it, but it seems to work anyway, which is the weirdest thing in the world. Yeah, uh, people are worried about money in politics. There's a there's a mm-hmm. thing called Citizens United. It was a Supreme Court case that opened some uh, certain right. purses of money, but not others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, a lot of my colleagues were deeply worried about so-called money in politics. And I keep telling them, well, that's why I teach like logic and critical thinking. I mean, the, the money is wasted if people. Are just better at thinking and reflecting on what they're seeing i mean you know it, the money will go to manipulation is what it goes I mean, but it, yeah. manipulation only works if if you're not like a thoughtful person you know like i i see it on the republican side too like I, there's a few congress there's a congressman running in texas for example that's a former navy seal i'm 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 a big fan look i was in the navy i got i got it mm-hmm. I, I i was a big fan I'm a big fan of this individual. I'm not going to say his name. Okay. His brother is also a twin. His twin brother, also a former Navy SEAL, and is quite famous. There was a film made about him, and for very good reason. Now, it's interesting. He'll just show up, and everybody knows that that's the guy from that film, the Mark mm-hmm. Wahlberg film,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, therefore, he's going to be a good congressman. Uh, now, right. for me, there's yeah. a huge gap between you served in combat and, and I trust you to, uh, you know, do combat. Well, <laughs> I guess I didn't really trust you cause I didn't even know you were over there doing the right. combat. Cause I don't know each individual right. seal, but, um, uh, but you know, it, it doesn't follow that you'll, you're going to have your, your eye on the ball on all of the particular things that representatives get caught up in, which because of their the way the structure is with the bureaucracy and the relationship with the huge bureaucracy, mm-hmm. which is permanent and, and actually has a say in its own budget because they they're permanent. You're there for two years and you don't even know what's going on. You don't even know how big this thing is. Mm-hmm. They have any number of ways to undermine you. You're supposed to keep that thing accountable. Well, mm-hmm. that's a different skill set. But that's why the issue of trust comes in. But I could also talk about the AOC in New York. Some people that voted for her, they trust her because she had been a waitress. And it's like, oh, I'm a waitress. And and look, she's got dark skin just like me. And so therefore, I trust her, you know, (laughs) because, you know. Yeah, so but it's like it's.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. playing to this idea, though, that if you have similar experiences to mine, yep. then maybe you are more sympathetic or you know what our interests
0: different. align yeah. for
1: our interests are aligning and therefore I can trust you like it might be something like that going on. But then the case of like, well, this is a celebrity, you know, therefore yeah. it, it's a yeah, that's, it, that's it, what it, makes sense it, of except if it's just like, well, at least I know that name and I have a positive association. And so I step into the voting booth and I feel positive association with this name and I have no idea what that name yeah. is. So I'll put the check mark by this one. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Uh,
0: it, 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 it it deeply bothers me. And I, I, also it yeah. bothers me just other stuff I see in politics in terms of, um, you know, well, the, the name association thing is a big time thing that I I just can't stand. But it's yeah, just so people basically put people.
1: Tons of money just to have signs that just have a name on it. Yeah, scatter them all over the neighborhood.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, it's
1: just, yeah, and they're it's just going. Isn't it just going for name recognition? That's it's all weird. it's going for. There's so you no, there's no, there's like, oh, no, there's not yeah, even an argument. Out.
0: There's no evidence that they're going to do a good job. It's just their name on a on a poster, but people fall for that, and so how did do, what does that have to do with so, so our? Here's discussion? another.
1: I've got another question for you. Then this is this is again you being the the political science, political theory guy, and I'm interviewing you uh is do you think there is an obligation to vote apparently i hear in australia it's actually you are legally required to vote like it's against the law to not vote in elections there's no law and here i sometimes have with my students is i'll say i'll just put forward the question is there an obligation as a citizen you ought to vote and i general the way the argument i generally make is there is not because you should really only vote if you actually take the time to make yourself informed and therefore, if there's no obligation to spend the amount of time it takes for me to actually be informed, then there, there, there's no obligation to vote because there should not be an obligation to be an uninformed voter. Um, but then that means if you're going to be an informed voter, then to say that you must vote. So, I mean, I'm, I'm using the yeah. word obligation and I'm being ambiguous between legal obligation and moral obligation. That's, um, That's how
0: we talk about obligations. Uh, well, yeah. I, let me and I'm not, av- I'm not avoiding your question. I know some people uh, do that, but I'm going to flip it around on you and I'm going to okay. pose a different question. Is there an obligation not to vote if you don't know what you're doing?
1: <laughs> yeah. So the it's a very
0: different way of thinking about it.
1: Right. Um, right. No, and, I, and so I'm, I'm inclined to say yes. So whenever I vote, if I don't rec- if I, I only vote for those things that I feel like I've actually, I actually know something about whether that's candidates or if it's like, you know, local ballot, ballot measures, certain issues. Like if I get down and it's like, you know, there's a list of judges and around here we vote for, uh, there's judges on the ballot, there's school board and all this stuff like that. Sure too, yeah. If I have no clue, then I just skip it because my, like it's utterly meaningless for me to check a box. Yeah, I haven't taken the time to figure out what's going on. So, uh, but, uh, but then if that's true at, at the lower levels, that's gotta be true all the way up. In fact, it might even be more true at the level of national votes national elections now it's harder maybe it's harder to be uninformed maybe when it comes to the national election but but it seems to me like if you're not going to be if you're not going to be informed then you're not helping anything by voting and so you're just as well not yeah
0: Yeah, Uh, what's it mean to be informed especially as knowledge is well i shouldn't use the word knowledge as um as the raw material that you want to be acquainted with for this, that's relevant is mediated through the media, which is where we get the word media. But I mentioned um,
1: social institutions with declining trust. That was a big one that I left off yeah. the list earlier, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, and, and you see it with YouTube. I mean, if you, if you uh, there, I'll give you a different example. It was one that was mentioned in the video that they took down. Um, how do I know, how do I, do I really believe that that's the reason they took it down? because a a huge part of what we talked about in that video that they took down was that YouTube takes videos down. But the Mm. context for that was, we were talking about the lockdowns and the quarantine and the public health panic in the last two years. And the, just the weird, the absurd levels of trust that, that apparently ordinary people had in government bureauc- bureaucrats to make these decisions about what's an essential business and what's not an essential business. It seems like it's like, how do you, how do you have the expertise to know what's essential and what's not essential? I mean, what, what kind of training even goes into making that judgment at all? And it seemed like mm-hmm. people I talked to didn't, didn't think at all about those questions at all, unless they had a small business, then they were thinking about it. But if they had just mm-hmm. a normal paycheck, then they were like, oh, I don't care. Um, so it's, it was, um, it was really disturbing, but, but there was a, a church that was fined. That was my grandfather's church called Godspeak Calvary chapel. They did. Um, I think at some point, some point nightly YouTube sessions where they discussed all of these issues. They had medical doctors come on and talk about the data. I, I didn't watch all of them, but I watched a fair number of them and uh, they were quite thoughtful uh, discussions and YouTube took down those videos. So, so my point that I was making in the, in the, to Brad Cummings and the video that they took down recently, I'm going to try, I'm going to appeal and try to get back up. You can listen to the audio of that three hour conversation on our website or wherever you get podcasts. It should be on Spotify still. Um, I haven't checked, but it is on our website, republicanprofessor.com professor.com backslash podcast um well the uh the issue i was bringing up was let's say i want to do a phd dissertation on how those lockdowns affected churches in ventura county in california which is where godspeak is in thousand oaks newberry park and i'm interested in that particular church because that particular church opened back up and they were fined and they were willing to take the fines because they believed so much in an opening up for meeting together and their interpretation of communion and all that, which required bodily uh, presence. And not to mention the pastor as a former mayor, former elected official there. So there'd be all sorts of reasons to do a, a PhD dissertation. Where's Where's the primary sources now? I can't, you know, I mean, I would have to ask for those archives from them. Apparently they still have a copy, but I couldn't just you couldn't just publicly access access them on something like youtube
1: yeah but so here's a here's a thought so, I'm i didn't mean to interrupt you know, yeah, go ahead. but but for
0: me that undermines trust in social media when there's censorship like that because right. that's prima facie evidence to me that um that you can't even consider the arguments that were made it would be like going through a a, a uh, library, and just randomly—not randomly. Sorry, not randomly. Taking out books that had certain words in them, and and then my real concern is for the kids and and the future generations that don't have memory. Like I'm already teaching kids that don't remember nine eleven. Right. You know, um, they don't have that memory. They don't ha- basic stuff that we remember. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm, I'm really concerned about like social media specifically and, and, like things like YouTube to, to, that are undermining trust and huge segments of society. It's you can, people can see this. We're not stupid. We can see what's happening.
1: But notice that, that the way they justify it is that, um, they're trying to address the problem of trustworthiness is how it seems like they would justify they, that's what so they the said problem it's misinformation. Is there's mis- misinformation in other words untrustworthy information out there so we're trying to do our part to improve the situation the misinformation situation
0: that's correct that and that's so what this is say. what we're
1: trying we're trying to make make youtube a more trustworthy place by getting yeah. rid of certain information um, it, but, it's ironic
0: yeah, it's ironic it is it's ironic. having the yeah. it's having the opposite effect for me
1: yeah um, but but you could imagine there's other people out there who are like yeah I trust YouTube more now. Well I don't know I don't know if there's anybody <laughs> actually who is this that. person. <laughs> I mean it's a figment of my imagination. Uh, well yeah, I, I haven't
0: I haven't saying, I haven't double checked this, but it would be interesting for me to go through and uh, I'm listening to a, a podcast called Another Way, which is run by a Democrat law professor and he it's it's um, he's had uh, people on. He had uh, Frank Letts on twice, uh, who's um, like a public opinion guy. He's, he's pretty famous. He, he has opposing sides on. And he's pretty fair and, and even keeled. And, and, and he's likable as a person, I would say, the, the host. But he had this guy on that was Trump's lawyer during that whole thing. And he had, this guy had to resign His name was uh, John Eastman. He had to resign from Chapman law school. Um, Well, he felt like he was, I guess if you have to resign, you're getting fired. So it's voluntary, but he, he, um, he obviously felt compelled to resign um, because there was so much controversy about his representing Trump and how all that came down. Um, Well, anyway, he had him on his podcast and uh, you can look it up another way. I'm not sure if that's on YouTube, but by the very d- email they gave me about even mention, I mean, the fact that I, we even mentioned that topic that they've discussed. You, so if if his video is still up there, then I will take that as prima facie evidence that there's there's political bias. And I already know that YouTube is it's in Silicon Valley and it's run right. by people that are not Republicans and they don't want, they don't like Republicans.
1: Yeah. That well, doesn't they're, mean and they take... they're also running uh, th- now. this pushes in a slightly different direction, but they're also running according to a profit motive. And maybe if you are a content producer that brought in millions of views to their website, maybe they would tolerate certain things, but if you're well, not, bringing, yeah. I mean, maybe,
0: but, but uh, yeah, the, it, it's well known in the second amendment activism community that, a lot of these people that run these channels that have high, high volume of, of views are just all of a sudden demonetized. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so, so, um,
1: so YouTube's being noble and resisting the money.
0: It's, it's odd. It, well, but that yeah. also means that the YouTube channel person uh-huh. now has to go to Patreon to get support to yeah, run the yeah. channel. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just, it's not just Second Amendment right. people, it's people about, um, questions about personal health decisions related to recent public health things things that go in your arm maybe and they have the same issue of being demonetized all of a sudden or having videos Mm. randomly taken down and so how how do you
1: i wonder if that i wonder if that costs youtube itself anything like are they sacrificing some of their own money to do that i just don't know i don't know how it works
0: i don't know either that's a that's a really interesting question i'm not sure exactly it seems like they would still be making money but mm-hmm. not they the the channel now doesn't get a cut of it that's how so that's what i'm
1: wondering like so if the videos if the videos are there but are demonetized that's all that qu- the traffic keeps. that's coming. a good
0: question to follow up on uh, yeah how is how's you that's very good
1: like if the yeah, video be- moved all together then obviously they're they're yeah. taking content off of their own site but anyway well
0: well um do you have a uh, time to tell us about the kind of courses you teach and what do you like teaching sure. about there? What do you like about South Carolina? If anything, what do you not like?
1: Yeah. So the, uh, the first answer that my wife and I always give to people when they ask, well, we lived in St. Louis obviously before this, cause that's where I did my dissertation. And I, I do got to put in a plug for St. Louis. I think it's an under underrated city. We loved living there. It's uh it's great. A lot of, especially for young families, there was a lot of good stuff to do with young kids that was either free or very inexpensive and all that. But, there's two downsides one is you have to drive a very 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 long way or fly if you're going to see the ocean another downside is you have to drive or fly a very long way if you're going to see actual mountains and here <laughs> yeah. we can take we can take a day trip to the mountains or to the beach so that's one thing we really like about living here just yesterday in fact we went down to charleston just did a day trip to charleston took our kids to see fort sumter um and uh and then walked on the beach a little bit and then we home in time for dinner um, even though we ate dinner on the road, but it wasn't time for dinner anyway. So we love awesome. that. Um, I love Charleston. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I like not having a lot of snow because we did get a fair amount of snow when it was very cold in St. Louis in the winter, even though my, my wife's a little more of a cold weather person than I am. So she misses it, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay without that. Uh, um, so, uh, so where I teach, well, it's a, it's a very, it's a small school. I am the one full-time philosophy professor here. There is a, an adjunct professor that teaches usually about a, a couple classes a semester. Um, and it's uh, and so I teach Gen Ed. Uh, there's two required Gen Ed courses that I teach. One is Introduction to Philosophy and the other one is a Senior Seminar in Ethics. And it's called Seminar, but, it, you know, it'll have everybody has to take it. So they're large classes. Oh, that's good. Um, and uh, it's kind of a capstone course. Uh, So it's not like it's not really like, uh, you know, intro to philosophy part two. It's more like really trying to dig into certain ethical issues and then background questions about.
0: So you have two required courses that you have. Two required
1: courses. And I could spend all my time teaching those. But the reason why there's a part time adjunct is because to free me up to teach some other courses. So uh, so this semester I'm teaching logic is the other course that I'm teaching. I'm teaching one selection, one section of ethics, two sections of intro to philosophy. And then one section of logic, and uh, sometimes you know, I can overload. But this semester, four four is my standard load. Four four. Okay. Yeah, and that's um, sometimes I teach extra, but uh, this semester I decided I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to. My time was more precious to me this semester. A four four um,
0: load for those who are not in the know it means four classes per
1: semester. Correct. Right. And Anything then I, in I the, do summer? the summer? courses. So I do. I teach. I usually teach an on class here in the. Uh, um, an on-campus class here in the summer—it's like a two-week intensive. Sometimes I'll do Intro to Philosophy, sometimes I'll do Ethics, and then the adjunct professor will do whichever one I'm not doing. Um,
0: which, so that was, which which uh, course do you enjoy teaching the most?
1: Of those, um, it, I enjoy different things about about them. So it, I mean, I know that's kind of a lame answer, but I no, re- really really are. It's realistic. Yeah, yeah. There, there are different aspects I like of each one and different, I like not as much. One thing that I really, I did for the first time last summer, and I'm planning on doing it this summer again, is we have a prison initiative. So just across, there's, we're right next to the river, Broad River is a river that goes into Columbia and right on the other side of the river from our campus is the Kirkland Correctional Institution, which is one of the big state penitentiaries. Oh. Um, it's actually where the, where death row for South Carolina is, okay. um, but they have a, uh our, my institution, Columbia International University, has a prison initiative where students file in prison. They can earn a, an associate's degree and they take all the gen ed courses. Um, and so they can they can take logic to meet part of their requirements. So I taught logic in the prison last summer. You go
0: into the prison?
1: I, I went into the prison and taught logic. They don't bring them out? <laughs> they don't bring them out. That's right. So that <laughs> so was a fantastic experience. What was that like? Uh, it was, it was great. I have a prison nickname now. Uh, so that was cool. I mean, were, it's a pretty cool one, Dr. J. So you could probably. Were they
0: freed up. up? Were you, were there any kind of shackles or anything like that? No,
1: no. So they, I mean, this, it, it's a rigorous selection process to enter this program. So uh, there's a lot of. Uh, they have a lot of
0: incentive not to screw up.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So they, so it was, uh, it was 12 students in the class. Um, they'd been it was their second year in the program. It's a two year program, obviously. It gets them an associate's degree. Once they're released, they can easily the whole thing transfers to CIU. So they can fairly easily finish their degrees here uh, once they're released. But a lot of them are in for a long time. So I don't know how often that's happened.
0: Were but you it, nervous they, about they teaching in be, prison?
1: A little bit at first, but I've talked to enough other professors. Actually, I would talk. There's several other professors here teaching the program. And each, every single one of them said it is their favorite teaching experience. That's cool. I like it more than any other teaching experience. How ever.
0: were the students? Did they do the work?
1: They did the work. They were highly motivated. They did it. the work. They were. So the logic class, it was probably the, le- the best logic class I've taught. And they weren't all like gifted logicians, obviously. Um, what,
0: what did you use for a textbook? For that class. I
1: used one that uh, by uh, Ryan Byerly, um, T. Ryan Byerly called, um, you know, I've used it for a couple of years now, and uh, I, I don't even see where I have my copy. I think it's called, it's called Logic, Introduction to Logic. I think it's over here, just a second. No problem. It's worth grabbing, I think. Um, there we go. We'll give him a plug. Introducing Logic and Critical Thinking by T. Ryan Byerly. And it's, uh, he's a professor at the university, at a university in Sheffield, England, I think, but he's, he's an American. Um, okay. uh, but it's called The Skills of Reasoning and the Virtues of Inquiry. So it's got that virtue word in it. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things I like about the book, like it, it's, you know, it's, it's got all the, all the basic stuff you need for an introduction to logic, but then it has this section at the end that is all of, that is about cultivating intellectual virtue. Mm. And so i like to intersperse that into the into the logic stuff and that's where he covers a lot of the informal fallacies he will take something like the yeah. fallacy and he'll identify it as a bad habit in reasoning and <laughs> therefore as intellectually vicious and then yeah. he'll talk about what kind of attitude should we have and he wrote this for christian institutions christian schools oh. so a lot of the examples mm-hmm. like ex- examples are often theological in nature um and then when in the virtues of inquiry part he puts it in terms of as as a disciple of jesus how ought you to go about thinking it's kind of with that kind of did,
0: did that come up in the in the did christianity come up in the prison
1: oh in yeah well, it's it's actually i mean this is a christian school where i teach so you actually have to be a be, you have to give a christian testimony to enter the program in the first place
0: so no complaints about the separation of church and state or anything like that no. okay. in fact in fact the how's, um, how's the program funded
1: uh donors donor
0: okay well there shouldn't be any problems then I yeah mean, so it is on donor state property funded.
1: yeah it is on state property and and it's you know in, but everything's funded by donors um it is it's been i think it's in its 13th 13th or 14th year now um the it has a close to zero percent recidivism rate which is almost unheard of in wow. prison education programs um cool. and and for your listeners recidivism is the uh, returning to prison after being released from prison yeah so uh, there's a lot of prison education programs out there, and uh, of course, again, you don't want to engage in the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, but but that's impressive uh, to have an education program with a very low. There's been a, I think there's been a few, but it's been very, very, very few uh, people who have gone through this program and been released to then ended up back in prison after 13 years anyway. So that's awesome. Um, and that's it's,
0: really it's interesting. I did not know. But about this is the that. way the
1: program. Yeah, this it's one of my favorite things that this school does is this program. Wow. Um, but it's uh, it's um, the program is it's meant to train prisoners to be chaplains assistants in prison. So that's what they do. So they're, so that's one way they serve the system is they'll apply. They can be at any, any prison in South Carolina, apply to this program. If they're accepted, they're all brought to this particular institution put into a cohort. And then with those set that same group of like 12 to 14 men they go through the they go through that program together they take all the basic bible theology classes gen ed classes like intro to philosophy and the ethics course and the logic course and uh, they, they take all of this and then they're sent out two by two in pairs to different prisons and jails around uh, south carolina where they serve underneath uh, an official chaplain uh, helping minister to, the, to prisoners. Huh. And the, uh, apparently this, this is the program is very well respected in the South Carolina prison system, is what I've heard. Uh, that that the, it's had a salutary effect on the prison environment. Um, and that, the, that um, I asked students in the program, I said, are there other prison education initiatives, prison education programs um, in South Carolina? And they said, yes, but none of them have nearly as good a reputation as this one the wow. uh, prison system.
0: I'd really there's, there's a dissertation or a set of dissertations that someone needs to write about that. How who who came up with the idea? How it got funded? uh Do you um, have to raise support for it? Or are you is that your role at all? Or is no, it, no, it, no, no, no. It's, uh, it's trustees. That uh, there's, do that?
1: there's a staff that works specifically for the prison initiative, and the people who and of course there's you know our school has full-time fundraisers for different things. And they work on this as well as other stuff. Is
0: there a website that people could go to if they were Uh, interested in supporting that?
1: You know, there there probably is. It's probably like CIU.edu slash prison initiative or something like that. But if you Googled, you know, Columbia Prison Initiative. I'll trust Google. Yeah. If you have like show notes or something you put in, you could find it.
0: I'll I'll link that since you've talked so highly of it and you're involved in it. And then it needs funding, obviously. So um, the, yeah. a, apparently, and
1: during it was virtually shut down during COVID. Um, oh so man! That was real That's hiccup horrible. in the system. But because the prisoners were spent most of the pandemic on lockdown, like completely. Um, but then, so then, what they ended up doing is they did get a donor to fund putting in a like dedicated, because they don't they don't want to have prisoners to have internet access, so you can't do Zoom but they've funded putting in a dedicated closed circuit sort of classroom environment between here and across the river. So if huh. so if they do have to if the prison is locked down but the students are can get out of their cells then we can at least do a, still do class sessions with the professors being remote. Uh, but of course it's it's much preferable to be actually in person if you can do that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean there's got to be some interaction with the professor. It can't just be a videotape or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I when you said that the prisoners were on lockdown, I I thought, well, that's probably a little bit less problematic than non prisoners being on lockdown, which is what <laughs> yeah. in fact happened. But yeah, I yeah, yeah. actually, I do. I, I am ambivalent about prison. There's uh, just that that as a punishment. I'm I'm not convinced. I, I don't I don't know. I, I I'm just you mean that it, it, that it should be
1: used as much as it is as a punishment. Is that what you mean?
0: Well, I think we over-criminalize in our society anyway, way too easily. Uh, Yes, Simple majority. Yeah, that's a crime now. I mean, I just Mm -hmm. you see it in Second Amendment law, but it's in other things, too. And and it's it bothers me. And then the way we deal with uh, people in the criminal justice system bothers me too there's all sorts of stuff but that's different well that's that's
1: uh i I believe the same thing that's one of the reasons why when i first when i was interviewing here for the position um i found out they had this prison initiative and honestly that was what i was most excited about that's cool i first came here was being able to to start teaching in the prison i was i was one when i was in st louis i had just started getting involved in in a program that was supposed to begin doing prison education
0: what is it about the why were you excited about it i guess
1: well, for some, partly what you said, what you said is, I think that there are some there's some real justice problems, like uh, without the way we do criminal justice and prisons and using prisons for, as a means of justice in society. I think there's a lot of real problems there, and I and I read some books that convinced me that for most people who go into prison, it makes them worse. Um, that that's, most that's people a go into prison are uh, like it it has a corrupting effect. Yeah. On the on the on the human person.
0: How could it not?
1: Right. And so I and so I wanted to be part of something that was trying to mitigate or respond or do something that had a salutary effect Mm -hmm. on the people who are who are in it, who are in prison. So that was why I was wanting to do that, Um, wanting to, you know, communicate to people, if nothing else, by the very presence of like you're still worth something and educating you is still worth something. That's still a worthwhile investment. Um, You still have something to contribute. Um, That's
0: good. So it's very thoughtful. In other words, you you have a theory about what prisons do. It's bad Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. character and the souls of people there. Mm -hmm. Um, And you want to help given that that is the modality of punishment for most felonies, I would say. Right. um, That you want to uh, help mitigate that problem that you have. That makes sense to me. Very thoughtful. Um, so, uh, are you happy in Southern Cal? Or are you happy in South Carolina? <laughs> uh, yeah, Southern, no, Southern, Southern Carolina.
1: <laughs> yeah, we do have a USC here, but it's uh, it's a different USC. Uh, so the um, actually, they recently had to change the name to U of SC, apparently because of conflicts between the USC over there in Southern California. Um, anyway. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm very happy uh, teaching here. I mean, you know, there's no perfect institutions. And as you know, every university is going to have certain issues and so forth. Um, So I'm not like, you know, rose colored glasses about anything. But I I love teaching my students. I love uh, being able to do what I do as as a job. I'm I'm happy here in South Carolina. Um, we were able to, the cost of living is a lot lower than many other places. So we were able to afford a house that, you know, we couldn't afford in most other places of the country. God. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot that I like about it.
0: And you're a skeptic, but you're a believer.
1: <laughs> yes. You could say that my natural bent is towards skepticism,
0: but that, I realized there's or a, a, a limit on that.
1: Yeah. There's a limit
0: Skeptical believer. Yeah. Dr. John Jonathan. Yeah. So you're
1: have you gotten used to being a doctor yet?
0: It's still, well, it's people still... have been calling me doctor since I started teaching. Honestly. <laughs> That's true. Um yeah. <laughs> I I I uh, Loyal to marymount where I was for over a decade, they always had my my mailbox as Dr. Lucas. But I don't know why. I never said that I <laughs> uh you know it's just yeah, yeah it's yeah. not um what about you did you did you was that no, a big it did, deal for it you it just
1: felt weird it just still it still sounds weird to me every now and then to just it just strikes me every some now
0: people don't like too. having it next to their name and well i gotta say I'm, I'm a little about ambivalent it. about it especially yeah.
1: so here's one reason is at a christian institution you have this annoying verse It's not really annoying but um where Jesus says uh don't don't call anyone else father because you have one father in heaven and don't call anyone else teacher because you have one teacher and so it seems to be a general attitude toward being wary of taking pride in titles you know yeah and so it's a warning about there's this there's this danger in titles to makes make you think that you know you kind of got it all going on and other people are below you and so that's where I'm like mm-hmm. You know, like there's this academic norm, and students do call me Dr. Reebziman, and it's kind of an academic norm. And it's like, okay, I, I and I can understand why it can be helpful—a certain degree of formality and signaling yes. who's a teacher and who's not, and all that. Yeah. Like that can be helpful, um, but there is a danger in it. And so I'll tell students, you know, if you're more comfortable calling me Jonathan, go ahead and do that. It's not offensive <laughs> to you at all, and it can be a helpful reminder to me that I'm just Jonathan. <laughs> Um, and then, and then once students graduate, there's a tendency to keep doing it. So i I try to be quick to say, if I hear a graduated student calling me, you know, Dr. Reeves to be fairly quick to say, you know, you, you can just call me Jonathan now. In fact, I remember yeah. Doug, Doug Guyvett. Yes. Who, Cause I would always call him Dr. Guyvitt. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, it took, and then after I graduated, he's, he said, uh, he was
0: our epistemology professor at biology. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I remember after graduation, him saying, um, uh, you know, you uh, you've graduated now, so you should just call me Doug. Yeah, and so I, I kind of like that. I like that little transition.
0: Well, what you could do is you could flip it around. What you could do is you could say, "Call me my first name," but then call the student and just yeah. student student
1: last name. <laughs> right? You and mean so instead like instead of like Mister or Ms or whatever? Yeah, we we, say, we uh, typically don't
0: don't emphasize the student relationship. It's oh, usually the, It's idea. usually the student. Uh, emphasizing the teacher relationship but we don't that's we don't point. typically double down and go student um yes. but you know, student I guess Smith. you call me my first name but what I'll do call you, you think student, student
1: smith yeah. yeah
0: so um pupil uh anderson here
1: <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah well, um, well i was gonna mention earlier uh so i do teach other classes besides those but those are the the ones i told you about are the main ones i teach but i also get to teach things like philosophy of human nature philosophy of science that's um, good uh, other other things like that so I, I get that in there and often each semester my favorite course even though i like something about all of them my favorite course is usually whatever upper level philosophy course i get to teach is
0: because you teach epistemology
1: i haven't actually done that yet oh me. man I, I had it i had it lined up to teach one semester and then it got canceled for low enrollment and then I learned that I really actually have to promote classes because if students don't know where it's being offered, they're not going to register for it, and a lot of times they aren't aware. So ever since then, I've promoted whatever upper-level class I've been teaching, and they've always gotten enough enrollment. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try it again sometime soon. But uh, uh, yeah, I haven't done epistemology yet.
0: Um, Do you like think that the epistemology? Favorite, sh- oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was
1: just gonna say the reason they're favorite is because the problem with gen ed classes is you always get people who would rather not be in the classroom. Yes. And it's pretty obvious and that can really throw off stuff. Yeah. Um, So, so when you have the upper level electives, in some sense, everybody wants to be in the classroom and that makes a world of difference. And that was the case in the prison. That was one reason why I liked the prison so much is those students really wanted to be there. And that makes a much better teaching experience.
0: Do you think that logic should be required? Yes. Do you think that epistemology should be required?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I like, so epistemology uh i mean uh, it's it's tempting to just start saying yeah all the stuff i teach should be required um but it's it's also tempting to just say all the philosophy stuff should be required but i realize you can't require everything you've got to pick and choose yeah so i don't know that i would say i think an introduction to philosophy is good to have as a requirement i do think ethics is good to have as a requirement and i think that logic uh yeah logic is really important since students generally don't get it in high school if they don't get it in college they're probably never going to get it
0: they're never going to get it but it's so
1: yeah it's so important for being you know a a trustworthy voter
0: (laughs) yeah i mean just it's just so many basic things that you you have to grapple with in that class if it's taught well uh i've
1: I, Maybe you, the key is if it's taught well, because I think there yeah, are probably sure. a lot of people have experiences with a poorly taught.
0: That, yes. In fact, I that's kind of possible. hear that all the time. When, yeah.
1: when people find out I teach philosophy, something I will often hear from people who've been to college is, yeah, I had a philosophy one, class once. So it was terrible. You yeah. know, I, I'll get it that. Just, it was just
0: on. a bunch of crap. It was just a bunch of made up yeah. stuff.
1: Well, well uh, a doctor I visited recently told me that. And he said it was because I guess it was probably taught by, an undergrad, by a grad student. And the, as they often are at some schools, at schools that have grad programs. And the, uh, the grad student, and he said it felt like the whole class was just, this guy was working on a dissertation on something and he was using us as an opportunity to talk about his dissertation research project. So that thing about focused on a little, like one little narrow thing, like the whole intro to philosophy class was all focused on one little narrow thing. And so that was his experience with intro to philosophy. And of course that whoever's in that class gets colored in their mind a certain way. About what philosophy
0: is yeah yeah that's sad and i I, i've noticed a lot of uh sloppy thinking about fallacies as well Mm -hmm. um when i'll I'll hear people say say some name of some fallacy and and they say it in such a sloppy way i can tell they've never thought deeply about it but they know the Mm -hmm. name of it because it was on some quiz or something yeah and i was just like oh man I don't know if it's one of my favorites. Might not, not appeal be the to authority.
1: Yeah, or there's two that I hear. One I is appeal to authority, where they bring it up like anytime you cite authority, that's appeal to authority. That's an appeal to authority. Yeah, oh, no, no, a, a and then there's also right. There's also take the my word
0: for it. It's a fallacy.
1: Right. <laughs> there's also the either or fallacy, where they think like yep. anytime someone says either this or that, it's always a fallacy. It's like so no, weird. No, no, That's not the fallacy. Yeah. I don't know if
0: it's a professor's fault. It's it's impossible to tell. I mean, yeah. Actually, you know, I mean, I've heard the ad hominem thing trotted out wrongfully too i i always tell my students it's not necessarily a fallacy it could be relevant to what you're talking about like for example in a courtroom Mm
1: -hmm. if
0: you're undermining credibility of the witness (laughs) Mm -hmm. it is relevant to to what they're saying if it's got to be irrelevant that's the thing, the, the, right, the right. issue. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, it, it could be that they just weren't taking careful enough notes or yeah, yeah. Whatever. I'm not Right, I'm not uh, sure. you don't want to
1: put too much on the professor. Because no, 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 I've no. Seen how as, students you, know, act as you know, yes, yes. Right, the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink is relevant.
0: That's right. Well, um, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing just even just a little bit about your expertise in trust and philosophy in general. And I think we barely scratched the surface.
1: Yeah, we did. <laughs> we barely there's scratched. There's
0: so many other things. Uh, I, I need to reflect on where to go from here uh, in terms of like an a, a episode two, if you ever want to do a second one uh, where we chase down some of these threads. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's so many different things. Maybe you could do the same thing. You could reflect on. Uh, f- further application of the trust issue. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah so one thing I I got, uh, I haven't actually even published anything for my dissertation yet because I went into teaching full time. And as you know, that absorbs all your time when you do that. So, but I'm now do just, it right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, that's right. So, but I'm now getting a point where I'm comfortable, you know, I've got my classes set well enough and I've taught them enough times that I feel like I've got a little more time opening up. So I'm really wanting to get back into You know, digging back into my uh, my dissertation and starting to pull stuff out and write some papers based on it, things like that. So, so I'm I'm planning on spending getting back into thinking about it again. So it's a yeah, be a good opportunity to do some of that.
0: Yeah, well, maybe we can help you uh, air out some ideas or chase down some threads for Mm -hmm. application.
1: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great.
0: Well, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank mm-hmm. you, Lucas.